0: Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. We have another spooky episode in store for you this week. Get cozy, get your favorite beverage, and get ready as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Every fall, my family plays the Better Behave Game, written by Lighting Nations. Each year when the leaves change color, my family plays a special game. The rules are simple. Don't misbehave, otherwise you get a strike. We play until the first snowfall of the season. Then whoever has the fewest strikes wins a prize. The person with the most gets taken away. Last year my sister Aliza won, like always... I came second, George my older brother came third, and my other sister Mary came last. I was sad because I liked Mary way more than George and Eliza, but father said that if we didn't send her away, none of us would survive. The twins, Peter and Ruth, are too young to understand the rules so they don't have to play, yet. This year, I got off to a bad start because George was being a jerk. He stole from my plate while father said grace. I heard a noise and opened my eyes right as he stuffed a handful of my berries into his big, fat mouth. Before I could do anything, he had swallowed them whole. I jumped up on the bench and grabbed George into a headlock. We wrestled around. Right as he started biting my arm, Father slammed the table. We froze. The veins in Father's forehead were showing, which is how we knew that he was really mad. Mother said, That's one strike for Luke. When I opened my mouth to protest, Father raised his hand. We never talked back when Father raised his hand. Doing that is an immediate strike. Even though it was totally unfair, I sat back down. Father lectured us about respecting our elders and behaving when they're speaking. We talked for so long that I thought I might starve to death. Then when he finished, he started saying grace again. I peeked open my right eye and saw George stick out his tongue. Later when I was trying to sleep, my stomach grumbled every time I closed my eyes so I snuck out of bed to get a snack. Our cabin is built around the kitchen. It's a big room with walls made from red bark. I pressed a chair against the wall so I could climb onto the counter and reach the top cabinet. The second that I touched the handle, somebody cleared their throat. I spun around. Mother was standing there with her nightgown. She had one hand pressed against her swollen belly where my next little brother or sister will come from. Yeah, I'm serious. That's two strikes, she said. A few days later, George and I went for a walk. See, because I was in last place, he had been on his best behavior. And behaving all the time is super boring. But if it was just the two of us, we could have a little fun thanks to the bonus rule. I should probably explain the bonus rule. George came up with it three years ago to make the game more fun. Whenever he and I were alone, we never squealed if the other one caused trouble, even if one of us got really annoyed or upset. It meant that we could still have fun while waiting for it to snow. We followed the path that runs around the lake near our cabin, skipping pebbles across the surface and climbing over boulders. George boasted about how I was going to lose the game. He said that all he had to do was keep behaving and then I would be the one to get taken away. No, I won't, I said. You're an idiot, which means sooner or later you'll do something stupid and mess up. George punched me in the arm hard, and because of the bonus rule, if mother or father asked about the bruise that was starting to form, I had to make up an excuse. We came to a small clearing in the forest. In the middle, there was a smoldering fire pit. Somewhere behind us, a twig snapped. George said somebody was coming and that we should hide. While George crawled under a hedge, I looked back and realized the person coming was Eliza. She was following us. Eliza always wanted to hang out with us, but George said that she was born and told her to pound sand every time she asked. I had an idea. I dared George to pull back a branch and let it hit whoever was coming in the face. You see, if George had hit one of the townspeople, I wouldn't be able to tell on him. But if he hit Eliza, I wouldn't have to. She would race straight home and do it for me. You're just trying to get me into trouble, he said. I started mimicking a chicken. George rolled his eyes. Do you really think I'm that gullible? Block, 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 George, I asked. and George grabbed the branch and got into position. When Eliza stepped forward, he let go. It whipped around, lashing her in the face. She to her knees holding her left eye. George laughed until he realized who he had hurt, and then he tried to help Aliza to her feet. He said, I'm sorry, over and over again. She shrugged him off and started heading back to the cabin. George grabbed a stick and offered it to Eliza. Here, you can hit me in the eye as revenge, just don't tell. He followed her out of the pit, begging her not to say anything, apologizing again and again. I punched the air. Strike one for George. When George realized that he couldn't stop Eliza from squealing, he charged after me. You knew that it was her. He had the same vein in his forehead that father gets. I ran, but not very far. George tackled me to the ground and punched my chest repeatedly. Mother and father wouldn't notice the marks there. We waited until sundown to return. George thought that father would have calmed down by then. Boy, was he wrong. Mother and father were waiting for us on the front porch. Eliza was sitting on mother's lap, her eyes all red and puffy, and Peter and Ruth were running around chasing fireflies. Father stood as we walked up the path, and George gulped. Let's strike one for George, mother said. George walked right past them and straight into his room. He didn't even come out for dinner. Two weeks passed and nobody caused any trouble. I got this sinking feeling in my stomach like I was falling. We were getting really, really close to the first snow, and I was in last place. I would lay awake all night, worrying that when I looked outside in the morning, everything would be completely white. I kept expecting George to screw up, but he was super careful. If I was going to avoid getting taken away... I had to trick him into misbehaving again. Luckily, father made us start rationing food, and that meant George was always hungry, which meant that he was always on edge. One evening, we sat down to dinner and father started saying grace. I peeped open my left eye, checked that no one was watching, and put a handful of George's berries onto Aliza's plate. Then I deliberately bumped the table and pretended that I had had my eyes closed the whole time. George reached across the table shouting, Hey! Elisa slapped his hand away. They both grabbed her plate and wrestled over it. George accused Elisa of stealing his berries and she denied it. Father slammed the table. They both let go of the plate at the same time, sending it flying into the air. A shower of berries came down on Father's head. His forehead veins surfaced and he clenched his fists. Mother got up and began picking berries out of his beard. That's strike one for Eliza and strike two for George, she said. George, you and Luke are tied for last place. George opened his mouth to say something, but then father slammed the table so hard that we all jumped, even mother. Bed now. Elisa immediately got up and laughed. George looked like he was going to argue for a moment, but then he got up and stormed off. I wasn't sure whether father met me as well, but I didn't want to take the chance, and I followed them back to the cabin. The next day, father sent George and me out to collect firewood. Eliza came with us. George wasn't happy about it, but father insisted that we take her. We wandered far away from the cabin, and then George asked Eliza if she wanted to play hide-and-seek. She jumped up and down. Yeah, you guys never let me play with you. George said that she had to be at first. The minute she started counting, we ran off. We spent the next few hours playing pirates, and dueling with these sticks that we had found. At one point, George decided that he was the captain. I said that he was too stupid to be a captain, and for that, he hit me in the finger with the biggest stick. I yelped. My fingers started to swell up. I said that I didn't want to play anymore, and we went back to collecting firewood. Lying beside a tree, I found a huge spider. It was bigger than Elisa's hand and hairier than Father's. I scooped it up, and then the next time George bent over, I dropped it down on the back of his neck. He threw his sticks in the air and just squealed like a girl. I nearly fell over laughing. Once he got the spider out of his shirt, he chased after me, tackled me to the ground, and sat on top of my chest. And then he stuffed, moist, dead leaves into my mouth. As he did, a dark figure appeared beyond George's left shoulder. I tried to speak, but I couldn't. What's that, Luke? George asked. He was too busy laughing to notice that Father was standing right behind him. A snowflake landed on the tip of George's nose. Next thing I knew, Father grabbed him by the arm and said, George had just lost. Father lifted George into the air and spun him around. Aliza was standing right behind them crying. George looked like he had seen a ghost. No fair, Luke misbehaved first, George shouted. He put a spider down my back and he did it before it started snowing. So he should lose. I felt a knot in my stomach. I couldn't believe George broke the bonus roll. The father turned towards me. Luke, is this true? I thought the vein in his head was going to explode. Terrified, I spat out the leaves and shook my head. Father looked at George and then back at me. After a few seconds, he turned back around and dragged George towards the cabin. Aliza and I followed along quietly. Whenever George tried to speak, Father shook him and screamed, ''Shut up!'' Beside the front porch, Peter and Ruth were catching snowflakes on their tongues. Their noses were all red and shiny. Father stormed past them and up the stairs. Mother stood. ''George is this year's loser,'' he said. Mother ordered Aliza and I to our rooms. I waited for a second, but now, Luke, Mother said angrily. I spent the next few hours curled up in a ball, crying. George was the biggest jerk on the planet, but he still shouldn't have lost the game. He was right. I had misbehaved before it started snowing. I had to tell the truth, even if it meant getting sent away. With a deep breath, I got up and exited the room. A voice in the back of my head kept telling me to go back to bed. Why should I get taken away? It said. George was the meanie. He deserved it. And George was, and it was true. But he was also my brother. And besides, I didn't hate him. Not really. Despite all the fights and insults and arguments, I actually loved him. Kind of. And we had fun together sometimes. Without him, things would be pretty boring. Especially when it was time to play the game again. I found my parents standing around the kitchen table. George was lying on top of it naked. Mother and father had drawn dotted lines and arrows all over his stomach, chest, arms, and legs. George was staring at the ceiling. Mother, father, I said. George's head slumped towards me. His eyelids fluttered a bit as he drooled all over the table. Mother spun around and then bolted over and took me back to my room. ''Luke, what are you doing up at this hour? We're getting ready to send George away. Go back to bed, now.'' ''I have to tell you something.'' I grabbed her hands and started crying. ''I was the one who misbehaved first, before the snow, and even I lied to father about it.'' My voice started to crack. ''I should be the one you send away, not George.'' Mother stared at me for a moment. She looked back toward the kitchen inside and then kneeled down. Luke, what you just did was very, very noble. She wiped away my tears. And I am so proud of you. You are, I asked. She nodded. Yes. In fact, it was so noble. I think you deserve to win the game this year. Does that mean I beat Aliza? She smiled and nodded again. I threw my arms around her. I couldn't wait to see the look on Elisa's face when she realized that she hadn't come in first. Mother put both her hands on my shoulders. And as reward for winning, you get an extra helping of my special beef stew tomorrow night. I hugged her. I love you, Mom. I love you too, Luke. The next day, we sat down to our annual end-of-the-game feast. And since I had won... I got the biggest serving. Elisa potted the whole time and it made the stew taste even better. Father belched. Well, I must say that was one of the closest games that we've ever had. It won't be next year, said Eliza. Luke just got lucky. Next year, he doesn't stand a chance of beating me. I'll win for sure. It won't be so simple, said Father, still chewing. He gestured towards the end of the table where Ruth and Peter were getting more of their stew on themselves than in their own mouths. Next year, the twins will be old enough to play. You might have some competition. I finished off my bowl and held it out. More, please. This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by The Audible Original, Impact Winter. Listen to the new Audible original Impact Winter from executive producers of The Walking Dead and the writer of Pacific Rim. It's a totally new original saga created just for Audible, presented in immersive 3D audio that dares you to pop in your earbuds and listen in the dark. In the near future, a comet hits the earth and blots out the sun, and beastly creatures emerge in the sunless world, and they just might be vampires. Follow the story of two sisters, Darcy, who was a battle-tested vampire hunter trying to save the world, and Hope, who was desperate for life to be normal again, and we can all relate to that. Here our brave few fight to survive the Impact Winter, and fight to live again. Visit audible.com slash survive, and listen now to Impact Winter. The rescue mission was in the no-go zone in northern Alaska. That's why they sent me. Written by with bite. I was working in a bar when they found me. The bar had seen better days, and so had the customers—the greasy, shabbily dressed men with zero personal hygiene who sat at the corner drinking beer and complaining. There was nothing too petty for them to moan about, and I had long ago tuned them out. I stood there, blank-faced, wiping down the bar and pulling yet another drink all day long and into the night. I'd been working at the bar for a couple of years, and I had no plans to move on. Heck, I had no plans of any kind. As far as I was concerned, I had reached the end of the road, I used to be a soldier who had been dishonorably discharged when a mission that I was on went badly wrong and lives were lost. The blame was pinned on me, which was absolute garbage. It was not my fault. I was brooding over this as I did every day when the soldiers walked in. I could tell they were soldiers even though they weren't wearing any uniforms. It was their confidence, their lean but muscular frames... That and their matching haircuts. There were three of them, the oldest. His buzz cut grain, stepped forward and said, You got somewhere private that we can talk. My him suspiciously as I replied, The kitchen's quiet. The customers are all on liquid diets. Will that do? He nodded and I led the way. The kitchen was a small, dank room with several interesting species of mold sprouting from the work surfaces. The soldiers stood around me. It felt like I was being hemmed in, and I didn't like that one little bit. The one who had taken the lead before, the officer I figured, looked me in the eye and said, We've got a mission for you. I laughed. I couldn't help myself. Mirthed Uncle Sam, I said. It's been a long time since I was in the army And just in case you didn't know I didn't leave on good terms His eyes narrowed I know everything about you I know you were a career soldier A sergeant One of the best in extracting nationals Held in hostile territory Entirely decorated for it I know that you were on a covert operation That went belly up Because of mistakes that you made Anger flared inside me That's bull, I snapped. He lifted his hands, palms out. Calm it, he said. I also know that that was the official line only. The real mistakes were made by people higher up the food chain. And though I can't get the record changed to show that, I can get your dishonorable discharge removed. I was still furious. Five years after my unit had been cut down by enemy fire after our location was exposed by an unsecure communication line, my nerves were still raw. Not only about the injustice done to me, but also because a good man had died. I stared down at the floor, thought hard and fast, and made a decision. I looked back up. Talk, I said. He explained the mission. It was crazy, incredibly dangerous, with a minimal chance of success. When he had finished, I said, I do this and you guarantee that my name is cleared. Yes, he answered, you have my word. I did not trust him, but I had to. The army had been my life and this was my chance at redemption. Six hours later, I was on a helicopter heading for northern Alaska, I had heard the name of the town that I was being sent to and a lot of wild stories about the place. Even though what had happened there was absolutely classified. The army is good at keeping secrets from outsiders. But it is also packed to the gills with soldiers who like to share stories with their comrades over a drink. And I had been stationed with men who had been on the ground when Incident Zero had taken place. Incident Zero had happened almost a decade ago. An army transporter had been conveying a top secret load from an isolated research facility to a base south of the border. The town was the only populated area for thousands of miles around and these soldiers in the transporter were meant to give it a wide berth. But they wanted a coffee, maybe a burger to go with it. So they had detoured and were trundling along the main street of the town when a drunk driver had collided with them. The drunk was traveling at speed and died instantly. The transporter was sent to skidding off the road and into the diner that the soldiers had been planning on visiting. The load was compromised and a gas was released. The immediate aftermath was chaotic. Because of the remote location, it took more than 18 hours for troops to reach the area to try and contain the situation. One of the men who had been there described the scene to me as hell on earth. As I wondered how much had changed since then, adrenaline pumped through my body. I hadn't felt like this since my last mission, and to be honest, I was buzzing, no matter how low the odds of success were. I took one more look at the middle of the folder that I had been handed by the soldier with the graying buzz cut. There was a photo of a young woman in it. She was pretty, with a mischievous glint in her blue eyes. Her long blonde hair was in a ponytail. Her age was noted as 24, and she was the only daughter of a five-star general. The file detailed her academic achievements and her criminal record. All minor offenses, but not the sort of thing the apple of daddy's eye should be getting up to at the weekend. It seemed the general's daughter had decided to rebel against authority, and now she had taken things a step further. After going through the papers he kept at home and discovering the ugly truth, she had traveled to the location of Incident Zero to film the area and expose what had really happened to the world's media. The facts with the army and politicians had conspired to carefully cover up. She'd taunted her father about this a few days before and that her signal was lost, which is why they needed me. I was to go in light and fast to find her and get her out alive, and destroy any footage that she had before she was delivered back to her father, presumably for something more serious than a grounding. I closed the folder. We passed over the towering concrete wall that had been constructed by the army in the weeks following Incident Zero to turn the town into a no-go zone, or so I thought. That wall wasn't much use in keeping the General's daughter out, I said into my radio. The reply crackled on my headset. It's not there for keeping things out. I took a deep breath and checked my firearm one more time. The town was just ahead. Hell had not gotten any more attractive over the last 10 years. Abandoned cars littered the streets. Buildings were abandoned. Seconds later, the helicopter was skirting the ground and I was being given the signal to disembark. I jumped out and watched the helicopter rising back into the air. I was on my own. I scanned the immediate area through 160 degrees. Saw broken windows of shopping bag in the sidewalk six feet away from me. Its contents spilled out, a truck, the driver's side door was open, and there were a pair of boots in the footwell. They looked old but in good condition, not the type of boots that you would just abandon. I walked over to the truck and peered in. There were foot bones in the boots, two complete sides, and dark stains on the dash that could have been mistaken for rise if you didn't know any better. I moved away from the dried blood that spread further throughout the interior of the truck and I moved on. To my left, the open door of a bar was banging against its frame in the wind. A sign painted on a still-broken pane of glass in its window, advertised, Half-Priced Drinks All Day Sunday. There was more dried blood smeared across the inside of the window. The wind that was keeping the bar door in motion was biting cold, Despite this, I was sweating. My shirt was sticking to my back and my palms were slick where they held the gun. I told myself that this was all fine. I was a professional doing what they did best, extracting people from bad situations. I started to move down the street. The traffic signals were dark. I passed the wrecks of more cars. Most would have been four-wheel drives. The type of practical, sturdy vehicles needed to live out here. Some of them had crashed into each other before their owners had passed into history. There were still keys in the ignitions, flasks on the passenger seats, a child's backpack and the seat of one. I swallowed back down sick which had risen into my mouth. I was starting to get the shakes. I had heard the stories from these soldiers who had been here, but seeing it up close was a different ball game. I kept moving. Kept checking my left, my right, alert and ready. The only sounds were that ding door banging and my own breathing. My heartbeat was beating too fast, and I could feel it, like an alarm that you couldn't turn off. In her last message before the signal went, the general's daughter had told her old man that she was heading for the diner where the transporter had crashed. There had been a map of the town in the Manila folder as well. I studied it and had the route to the diner clear in my mind. I needed to turn left at the end of the main street, walking more quickly, fighting back the urge to run, I got to it. I had just reached the turn when I saw my first survivor from Incident Zero. The only survivor is the wrong word. I thought it was a pile of rags at first. Everything else was lying around abandoned in the street, so why not clothing as well? I thought. But then the rags began to move, and I saw the bones inside and the flesh still hanging out in places. This thing that was crawling towards me had been a person at one time, a resident of this town. Its eyes were gone, long since rotted away, I had figured. A patch of scalp still covered the top of its skull with a few tufts of black hair sticking up. Its right forearm and skin, a faded tattoo of an eagle, was clearly visible. There were tendons, these scraps of organs. Other than that, it was a skeleton that was closing in on me. A problem that I had not been anticipating presented itself to me. I knew other the soldiers who had been sent here in the aftermath of Incident Zero had killed the afflicted. After a degree of trial and error, shoot first and learn afterwards. They had discovered the way to put the things down for good. It was to shoot them in the head, destroy the brain, and the monster. Only and I leaned over to try and see better through the empty eye sockets. This thing did not seem to have a brain. Another few seconds and it would be at my feet. I swore and opened fire. Bullets tore through bone, separating skeletal limb from the remains of muscle until the thing lay in pieces. It twitched, jerked, seemed to be trying to fight on and reach me but it was pretty much just human leftovers now. I did not know how many more there were still in the town. Almost the entire population had been turned in the chaos following the crash and the release of the gas. The drunk driver was the first. To the horror of these soldiers who had been in the transporter, the driver's body dragged itself from the car and started walking towards them. The driver's head had been close to decapitated in the crash and it hung down to one side. Somehow, this had not stopped it from biting the first soldier and tearing a chunk out of his neck. This unfortunate soul turned minutes later and attacked his comrades. By nightfall, the newly dead owned the town. I know this because of the almost... One teenage boy managed to hide in the space under the porch of the local chapel... ...and saw hell being born. He was rescued by the soldiers and taken to a secure hospital where he will probably see out the rest of his life. The transcripts of the interviews with him had also been in the manila folder. Poor kid. And poor me. If I did not get a move on. I ran this time, left, away from the main street. The crash transporter came into view... Its rear end had slammed into the window of the diner and the cab at the front was twisted, almost on its side. There was no sign of the general's daughter. I decided to check out the diner first and I clambered over the back of the transporter to get inside. Trashed plastic tables and chairs were scattered across the floor. Apart from the furniture of one corner booth, it was intact. A dead man sat there staring at me. It had a baseball cap on and big black framed spectacles. Behind them, the remains of eyeballs peered out. The rest of it was better preserved than the last thing I had encountered as well. There were gaping wounds in its face and the skin of its hands were hideously decayed. Apart from that, it looked in pretty good shape considering all things. It certainly got to its feet quick enough and started to shuffle towards me. Its arms were held out in front, and it was moaning. Drool dripped from the corners of its mouth, and I swear the freak was licking what was left of its lips. I am not for dinner, I told it, and I blew a hole in its forehead. I stood there for a moment. I wondered if what the soldiers had said about totaling the brain was true, and then it fell onto its knees and face-planted the linoleum floor. My shoulders dropped. I felt a moment of relief. And then these swing doors to the kitchen opened and a whole host of them appeared. The soldiers had taken out a lot of the reanimated corpses of the townsfolk. By the time the order came to fall back and to build the perimeter wall. But not enough. From my point at that moment in time, nowhere near enough. The thing in the vanguard of the group had once been a woman. Her hair had continued growing and reached now beyond her waist. The skin on her face hung off under her eyes, like she was weeping tears made of pale flesh. Her teeth were bare, as were those of the things crowding behind her. Men, women, and a dog. A great hulking thing whose veins were exposed to the gums where its snout had decayed away. It looked like it was a back on the menu, I felt bad about taking the dog out, the rest were a matter of self-survival. My ears ringing from the gunfire, I stepped over them and across the diner floor and I went into the kitchen. It appeared to be deserted. My instincts were screaming at me that this was not the case. Something had drawn the things here and I did not see any way out of the kitchen. I reloaded my firearm and raised it as I pried open the door of the freezer propped against one wall. With no escape, this was the obvious hiding place. And sure enough, there she was. Pale, shivering like crazy, even though the freezer hadn't been connected for a long time, and closing in on asphyxiation. I lowered the gun took her arm and helped the general's daughter stumble out. She held a mobile phone in her right hand, as gentle as I could. I pried her fingers off of it and then took out the SIM card, snapped it in for good measure, crushed the phone under my boot. She swore at me. I'm glad you're feeling better, I said. The color was coming back into her cheeks and there was a fire in her blue eyes when she spoke. What they did here was wrong. The world needs to know. The world is not my problem, I replied, even though I agreed with her, even though I was suddenly furious. After all these years, something had snapped inside of me. The army had chewed me up and spat me out, and I had jumped right back into its big, ugly jaws, doing their dirty work because of my pride. Come on, I said. Let's get out of here. I was not going to hand her over to the army and her father. I was going to help her escape. She smiled at me, understanding. She was still groggy, but with my help, we were soon managing a jog. She had brought climbing gear and ropes and was leading us back to where her kit was still in place. Once we made it over the wall... We had thousands of miles of wilderness to survive before we made it to safety. And along the way, the army would soon be hunting for us when I did not report in. I was ready for these challenges. The perimeter wall was in sight when she finally collapsed. I caught her before she hit the ground. Lowered her the final inches with her head, a cradle in my hands. All the color had flooded out of her and her face was soaked in sweat. What is it? I asked. She groaned and arched her back, and I saw the bite wound in her side, just above her waist, and it was ugly, red, and stank. She looked up at me. I'm sorry, she said. One of them got me before I could get into the freezer. It'll be okay, I said, and I moved away a strand of her hair which had fallen over her eyes. I was lying. It was not going to be okay. Okay. She was dying, and after that, things would get worse, and she knew it. Her eyelids began to flicker. She was starting to drift away. Her lips moved, and she said something, but too quiet for me to hear. I leaned closer and heard her when she said again, Do it. I raised the gun and fired. Afterwards, I carried a body over the perimeter wall. I didn't want it to remain imprisoned within. I carried her for hours through the wilderness until I came across the clearing. It was beautiful and peaceful. I buried her there, said goodbye as the sun was streaming through the branches, and it bathed her final resting place in light. I invented a list of strange rules for my stupid office job, written by Grand Theft Motto. I really hate rules. Whether you call them laws, or guidelines, or regulations, or codes, or whatever, rules are just another form of capitalist BS. I don't care if you put them in a list, write them in a book, or tattoo them on your butt. I ain't going to follow them. No shirt, no shoes. No service. And screw that and screw you. How about no shirt, no shoes and I take a leak on the wall. Idiot. Alright, if you made it past that opening, you're probably alright and open to hearing what I have to say. I messed up big time. Let me start from the first day in the office and paint you a picture with my words and that kind of stuff. So, imagine me walking into an office building around 10-ish one morning, about a week ago. I look good. I've got on a freshly ironed Oxford, shiny shoes and even a freaking tie. Like a tie-tie. The physical embodiment of rules and structure. A silken capitalist news. I hated the tie. But I wanted to fit in on my first day on the job. You see, I had a plan. A strategy. I was going to take society down from the inside. I was Odysseus. And this random office supply store office was my Trojan horse. You see... I'd been applying to jobs and going on interviews for weeks, just for the fun of it. It seemed like a great way to waste a Tuesday afternoon, especially if I got loaded first. The goal of the game was to waste as much of their time as possible. I am wildly unqualified for pretty much every position, except for a missionary, you dig? So imagine my surprise when I actually got hired. They must have been hard up for staff like you wouldn't believe. I nearly turned them down, but that's when inspiration struck. How could I bring down the system from inside the system, you ask? With a list of rules... Rewind your brain to that image of me walking into the office for my first day. My shirt is crisp. My hair could legally be classified as an oil spill. And I'm giving off some big disco energy. I don't report to HR like they told me because that's a rule. Instead, I walk confidently into the break room for a cup of free coffee and some free food from the fridge. They actually name their food here, which I think is weird, but hey, different strokes. If somebody wants to keep a container of General Sal's as a pet and name it Alice, who am I to judge? Once I confirmed that I was the only real dude in the room... I enacted step one of my plan. I rolled up on the big corkboard that dominated one of the walls. It was practically festooned with flyers, rack cards, sign-up sheets, laminated safety BS, and other various BS documents and a kaleidoscope of BS formats. You know, typical office fixture from what I've heard online. I did a quick one-two glance to make sure that I was still alone. And then I pulled out the list of my rules from my back pocket and stapled them in a place of honor in the middle of the board. Hello, fellow worker bees. This is your friendly neighborhood collection of overlords with some updates on company policy. Rule number one. Our dress code has been updated to reflect the fact that fashion is poison. Fur is murder. Leather is murder. Denim is assisted suicide and every pair of Doc Martens produced requires the destruction of an acre of rainforest. From now on, you wear a simple potato sack to work and you'll like it. Rule number two. There are no more titles or ranks here, at whatever the F we do office. All positions are equal and will be paid as such, and should be referred to in conversation as such. Except for missionary, that position remains above the rest. Rule number three free frickin' space. Rule number four. There will be a mandatory burning of timesheets at three p.m. And don't forget your marshmallows. Rule number five. Remember that we are worker bees and thus we should make buzzing sounds with our mouths whenever we move through the hallway. Buzz buzz. Rule number six. Simon says no more bathroom breaks. Toilets are only porcelain thrones of oppression. Instead, we provided a lovely courtyard for your bladder and bowel convenience. All rules are active immediately. Failure to comply will result in summoning and unleashing Azgubaton, the Destroyer, who will hunt down Rule Breakers, shred their souls into shrieking nothingness, and eat their physical forms from butt to windpipe. Yours truly, in warm regards, the system. I stood for a moment, basking in the pride of a job well done, and then I went searching for an empty office so I could take a nap. I fell into a deep, well-earned sleep under some schmuck's desk, until the sound of screaming ripped me back awake. The office that I had snuck into was one of those all-glass types, with blinds on every wall. I pulled at the blinds nearest to me, to discover the glass was splattered with blood. So much blood. The entire room on the other side of the glass had a red tint to it, I watched men and women running from every direction. A pair of well-dressed dudes collided near the copier. One scrambled up and took off, but the second guy was stunned. That's when the demon walked in from a side hallway. Gun to my head, if you asked me what kind of person I was, I would probably say brave, even borderline heroic certainly hard to rattle, but when I saw the creature, I released a scream of absolute horror from my mouth and a stream of utter terror from another part of my body. The demon was at least eight feet tall with reddish amber skin and built like a freaking brick house. Even his biceps had abs a skirt of hissing snags hung from the monster's waist. The the Destroyer. He was real and he was here. Oh crap, crap, crap. I whispered, ducking behind the nearby blinds as the demon scanned the room. I didn't think Asgur was real. The name came up in one of the Warlocks versus the Patriarchy chat rooms that I frequented. But I assumed it was somebody's DMD homebrew or something. Not a living, breathing demon. I peeked from around the blinds to see the man who had fallen by the copier, crawling away from Asgabaton. The creature reached out a long arm which grew longer and longer every second, until he could grab a handful of the dude's hair. It only looked like the demon had tugged a casual twitch of the wrist, but somehow it managed to yank all of the man's hair and half of his skin from his body. Red meat and twitching muscles lay exposed in his back, My Asgard baton leaned over and licked along the white curve of spine poking out of the flesh. My stomach crammed, it rolled and then released its contents on the floor. The demon's face snapped in my direction. I felt like a mouse staring down a cobra. My legs refused to move, my lungs refused to pump but my heartbeat was working over time, pounding so fast that I could almost hear the blood sloshing through my veins. Asgurbaton took a long step towards where I was hiding, then stopped and turned. A disheveled middle manager type was sprinting towards the demon while holding a pair of scissors high above his head. Asger Batana stepped forward in a flash, wrapping the man in a bear hug. My her bone snapping from all the way inside my glass office. The demon kept squeezing the manager until a spurt of red went out of each ear. I finally shook myself awake, and I threw open the door to make a mad dash for safety. Behind me, I could hear the man and the creature's embrace scream in higher and higher octaves until the sound suddenly ended with a wet, rippy noise. That was about an hour ago. I managed to make it outside into the parking lot. There were police everywhere. Shell-shocked workers laying in the grass ...and what seemed like an excessive number of firefighters for a demon attack. Except nobody believed that it was a demon attack. Even the staff in the office, who had literally seen a towering lump of muscle and violence slaughtering their co-workers... ...gave me confused looks when I talked about Azkir The official story was... That there was a gas leak that led to an explosion and fire. Just a minor explosion. We didn't even make the local paper. I've been doing my research on the forums where I first saw the name Asgirbatan. Apparently, other than the destroyer, the demon has other titles. The Distortion. The Forgotten The Unseen. Something about him messes with people's minds and memories. The moment that he's out of sight, your brain starts rewriting what it just experienced. It comes up with excuses. Comforting lies that fill the gap, where Asgurbaton was only a moment before. But whoever calls up the demon remembers him. Is aware of him. I remember him. So I guess that makes me his master. If that's the case, I'm in a lot of trouble. Because, according to my anonymous online friends, Asgur Batan can't return to the fourth circle of hell until he devours the one who summoned him to Earth. Crab. All because of a dumb list of rules. I found this journal from the 1890s. I hope what's in it isn't true. Written by Realistic RealisticTriegel384 Hey everyone, I'm not really sure if this is the right place to post this, but... I was looking through my grandpa's stuff yesterday when I found this weird journal thing buried under some old books. I'm not sure if it's a family heirloom or just something that he picked up, but the contents have me a little bit creeped out. Most of it is normal, just boring talk of life in the Victorian era, but the last entry is a little out there. Keep in mind, it's written in that weird old English and that's a little hard to read. It's not as bad as you would think, but it's still pretty dense, so be warned. See for yourself. Nineteen ninety-seven. I apologize for neglecting you all this time, dear companion, but I'm afraid I must confide in you again, for I have witnessed something truly abhorrent on this night, something that I know no sane man shall believe if I were to reveal it. I had long thought that my father's inheritance would be enough to support me and my mother until I concluded my studies and found a suitable work. However, in the months following father's death, her health had begun to decline. Her condition burned through the bulk of our savings and it forced me to find an alternative source of income, which given my standing and lack of proper study proved difficult. For weeks, I paraded myself about town like a common harlot begging anyone who would listen for employment. The bobbies nearly tossed me in prison for panhandling the way that I went on, but my labor was not without its fruits. I found employment in a man by the name of Count Abraham Hohenzollern. The Count was new to the London area and had taken up residence in a home not too far from Westminster. While the home was fully staffed, The Count had need of an errand boy to undertake the odd deliveries here and there. It was unbecoming work, but work nonetheless. I had always had a way with horses and so I figured the job would not be too cumbersome. An assumption proven wrong the very first day, or should I say night. At nearly the stroke of three, I was asked to drive one of the Count's carriage to a location that I was not privy to. The time was odd enough before I saw the carriage itself. It was an old contraption that was little more than a box and wheels. There were no seats inside, nor anything meant to accommodate passengers. It was colored a deep black like that of a starless night sky, and pulled by horses of the same color. A single lantern hung beside the driver's station, Though the lights seemed to be sucked into its darkened tide, I could not describe what exactly set me off the vehicle, but now I know all too well. Someone had tried very hard to make sure that it wasn't seen. I was instructed to take the carriage to Abney Park Cemetery, where I would be meeting three of the Count's men. They weren't the most welcoming of individuals. Though I suppose nothing more could have been expected given the circumstances. All three wore dark clothing and covered their faces with an assortment of cloth and garments. What was most disturbing of all was the specific work they undertook. They had gathered outside the cemetery gates by the time I arrived and had with them stacks of large leather bags. A pungent odor like that of meat left to rot in the summer sun wafted from the bags and it curled my nostrils in disgust. One by one, they loaded the bags into the carriage, during which I could hear their contents jostling about. I figured little from this and assumed that I had gotten mixed up with grave robbers of some sort. My good conscience told me to take the carriage straight to the authorities, but the payment was too lucrative to ignore. Doctors cost too much and my mother wouldn't survive without them. So I did the job and I did it well. Night in and night out, I would ferry them counts ill-gotten gains to and from his manor without protest. I could only imagine what use he might have for them, but I imagine that once one has a taste for luxury, it can be quite difficult to relent. He was good for the money as well, more so than I ever thought possible. With the income that I brought in, I was able to pay for whatever personnel or treatment my mother required, without having to sacrifice my academic ventures. Before long, she began to recover from her ailments and regain some of the dignity that they had stripped from her. i just say that it was quite reassuring to see her wandering about the house again, sewing and cooking as she had in my earlier years. The greatest of all was her smile. It had been some time since she had mustered anything but a solemn frown or dreary passive expression. I did not blame her for this, though I could not help but feel resentful towards her. In the months since my father's death, our roles had taken something of a reversal, She, the bedridden, mewling beggar, and I, the stiff-lipped provider. I know in the deepest corner of my heart, it is no fault of her, but I hated her all the same. We had already lost so much dignity in her squalor. The least she could have done was not pot like a common field hand. In the weeks following her recovery, however, she did just that. She greeted me with a grin upon my return home and sent me off with an equally beaming grin. As time went on, she even rekindled relations with our neighbors, putting our name back in other good graces. In the few gatherings that I had time to participate in, she was the sun among stars, pulling everything into her orbit with a twinkling smile and joyous composure. It delighted me to see her in such good spirits again, and made my evening affairs all the more tolerable, though even my mother's miraculous recovery cannot distract me for long. My routine had become almost mundane by this point. I attended classes by the day and drove the carriage by night. Nothing more, nothing less. That is, until one night a few weeks ago. When my partners in crime made one tiny error it was a night like so many others they were filling the carriage with their misbegotten treasures while i sat in waiting at the driver's seat my thoughts lingered on that day's lessons when suddenly a loud crash came barreling through the night i spun around and saw that one of the workers had thrown one of the bags into the side of the carriage rather than through the door An error of exhaustion, no doubt, but one that was not without its consequences. The bag's leathery hide had been split open from the impact, just enough for the dim lantern light to illuminate a tiny sliver of its contents. What I saw shall forever haunt me, for I saw no jewels or coins, but a head. It belonged to that of an older woman, whose pale skin had just begun to blacken with rot. Her mouth hung agape, devoid of liveliness, and her eyes had rolled back as if she were on the verge of passing out. Silvery strands of hair hung unkempt over her features, robbing her of whatever glow she may have possessed in life. A shocking morbidity hung about the head as it rolled about in the bag, compelling me almost to madness before one of the workers scooped up the bag and tossed it into the carriage. I almost hadn't believed my eyes when the head had passed from my vision. Perhaps at another time, I would have thought it a trick my mind had played on me, but the image of the head lingered in my mind with all too much clarity. There was a creeping sense of familiarity brought on by the head, and one that haunted me all through that night. I did my job as I had been expected to, but all the while battling the hauntingly nostalgic sight of the head. It wasn't until I returned home that I was greeted with some peace. My mother knew there was something wrong with me. She implored me to talk with one of the many doctors she saw, but I refused, knowing my ailment was not physical. All throughout the day... I was plagued by visions of the head staring back at me, its aged skin gripped with rot, and lifeless eyes turned away from my own. Only when I was in the company of my mother did I find any escape from the waking nightmares. Soon, however, she could offer me no more comfort. Grave robbery was a matter I could excuse, but I could not ignore the desecration of corpses. I had to know what sort of man would order such an action and why. So, with what little free time I had, I endeavored to learn just that. My research proved quite fruitful before long. Count Abraham was well known in his home country where he had dined with the likes of the Kaiser. He had been born heir to their house and had spent most of his youth cultivating an extensive understanding of the sciences, by age 17, he had graduated from the University of Munich and was heralded in many circles of academia, even here in London, as one of the greatest minds of the modern era. Though what specifically he studied is hard to say, his education was such that he had expertise into all realms of knowledge, though he seemed to have something of a leaning to the sciences of life. As you can see, the Count was quite exceptional, but I had no inclinations to the depravity I believed him of. It wasn't until I concluded my research that I found something of the sort. In 1895, a fire had broken out at the Count Ancestral Home, the castle of his elders. All of the staff were killed, but the body of him was never found. Strangest of all, Eyewitness to the event report seeing a man fleeing from the inferno while dragging a sack of something behind him. The local authorities believed this man to have been the culprit, and while I agreed, I did not think it was the full story. I am not sure what else I would have recovered had my investigations persisted. Unfortunately, the Lord had other plans in mind. My mother's health had resumed its decline in the midst of my investigations. Little by little, she inched her way back to her bed and soon passed from this world with a smile on her face. She would have been proud of the way that it happened and the events that proceeded afterwards. The entire neighborhood came to mourn the loss of her and watch as she was lowered in the earth beside my father. I hold no regrets for her. Only that she could have seen how loved she was in the end. Life was hollow for the weeks after her passing. The house was left hollow without her presence and the smile that so many have enjoyed. Some day I found myself lingering outside what had been her bedroom, praying that when I stepped inside, I would find her laying where she had always been with rosy cheeks and flashing teeth. I never realized just how much I needed that until she was gone. And time had yet begun to mend such a wound when it was ripped open once again. I returned to my job days after the funeral, only to hear that the count had ordered a change in the delivery route. Instead of Abney Park, I was instructed to drive to Brompton Cemetery. I knew the way well. I had buried my mother there only a few days ago. In many ways, the job was exactly the same as it had been. I drove through the night, arrived at the cemetery, and waited while the men unloaded their haul in the carriage. All the while, however, I was plagued with thoughts of who had been dug up. I didn't dare look at the bags for fear of which deathly drained face I might have seen staring back at me. Yet my ignorance was all but fertile a soil for my dread to grow from. By the time that I returned to the manor, I could tolerate no more dread of filled wonderings. I had to know what exactly it was that was transpiring. It making my way into the manor itself was rather simple. I simply stayed out of sight, and followed those that had unloaded my carriage, a cargo inside. When they made their way into the manor, I snuck in behind without drawing any attention to me. The inside of the manor marked a starchy contrast to the outside. Cool, simple marble work bestowed it, with a subtle life while the inside felt stuffed and dead, thousands of components compounding together yet adding nothing. Its manor's trappings were regal beyond compare, almost too much so. Every inch of floor was covered in a layer of decorated carpeting. The shapes woven across their faces were so intricate that one could get lost in their sprawling patterns and majestic caricatures. It almost hurt to look at, as if the mind could seldom process the sheer magnitude of the designs. The walls departed from this outline very little, being stuffed to the breaking point with exalted items. Swords, shields, guns, portraits, armor, tapestries. Anything one would have expected to find in a museum had been strung up against the walls. Some were even stacked atop each other when the owner had run out of room, forming a thick, jaded layer of paraphernalia eclipsing the true wall. The weight of such extensive grandeur was stifling, shortening my breath even more as I pressed on. I slunk behind the help, keeping pace with them only so far as they knew where to go next. Their confidence and their security blinded them to my approach and let me follow them to their journey's end. In the center of the manor, or what I believe to be the center, are a set of doors adorned with more jewels and precious stones than the king himself. Had I not known better, I would have thought them to be the gates of paradise themselves. I could not see behind the doors for at no point were these staff members moving through them. My chance might have come as they completed their tasks and wandered off to attend to their other duties, only for the very last one to lock it shut behind her. I would have snuck my way out of the manor had I not noticed what the servant had clutched in her arms. It looked like a slab of meat wrapped in paper like the kind one would leave a butcher shop with. Knowing what had been brought into that room, I elected to follow the servant after all others had filled away. She climbed the many steps to the top floor of the manor, while I crept behind her and heard until she arrived at another peculiar door. This one was not as ornate as the previous ones, but if I had to summarize its peculiarity, the rest of the house seemed to have grown from it like roots from a tree. Rings of items spread out from the door, carrying with them some semblance of uniformity. The closer one drew to the door, the less and less clutter covered the walls, "'giving one a view of the oddly uneven brickwork beneath. "'Countless stones of varying shapes and size and hues "'had been sealed together with mortar that dripped out over them. "'The patchwork was unbecoming of such a luxurious establishment, "'and it unnerved me as I approached it. "'The servant undid the lock on the door and gently pushed it open. "'A vigorous beam of light came bursting out into the hallway.' blinding me in its contrast between the dim halls. The servant slipped inside before long as I crept to catch the door before it shut. I did not slip inside after her, I liked instead to linger by the door and peer through the crack that the light streamed from. Inside was a place I assumed was a dressing room of sorts, albeit one that had been expanded to its zenith. The ceiling easily rose another story, with the oddly barren walls colored white as pure as snow. A chandelier hung over the room from which a flickering candlelight was cast outwards in every direction. Shadows danced across the floor which was covered in an assortment of papers scattered haphazardly across the floor. I could make out little of what was transcribed on them, but what I could discern seemed to be anatomical diagrams of the human body. I even recognized a few from my universities and medical studies. In the very back of the room, however, lay that which drew all my attention. A dressing table was propped against the back wall, but it was adorned with beautification products like my mother's had. Rather, the only items it housed were string and needles, as if he was preparing to quilt something together. Sitting before the display was a figure whose details I could not ascertain. His body was covered in a silken robe that glistened in the candlelight, his face obscured by a hood that he had pulled over his head. His back faced the doorway from which I spied and the servant approached, making further identification impossible. The woman was in clear distress as she approached, Her posture became rigid like stone and her steps slowed the closer she drew to our mutual benefactor. I could only imagine what horror contorted her expressions. She was quick to lay the package down on the dressing table, scurry back and say, The portion you requested, my gracious lord. The figure's head turned ever so slightly to gaze at the parchment and asked in a voice tattered and mangled like a shattered glass. Not too old, I hope. Yes, my gracious lord. This specimen was 54 when she died. The man slowly extended a hand out to rest on the parchment, a simple act that elicited a surge of horror within me. The hand that slipped from his robe, a patchwork of color of every shade on God's green earth, white, black, and even yellow, all sewn together with thread into a quilt of human skin. The fingers themselves were also mismatched. Some were withered like that of an elder, another was thick and callous laced, and one was so small and frail I swear it must have belonged to a child. I had to clasp a hand over my mouth to suppress the gasp that would have escaped. My eyes could not turn away from the sight, nor stop themselves from absorbing every detail of the scene. They raced along, every string laced through that skin, only to watch them disappear into the folds of his robe. I should have fled from the sight as any sane man would have, but a fierce union of fear and morbid curiosity froze me to the spot. The mismatched hand pulled the package in front of the figure, obscuring it from my view. Good. The man moaned as if he were spitting out his last words before suddenly barking, "'Leave!' As if a dog from the starting line, the woman burst from the spot and fled back to the door. Her rush was such that I barely had time to dodge aside, and when she did come barreling through the doors, she did not notice me crouching beside it before speeding off down the stairs. I assumed she was too desperate to flee from the man to notice someone slinking in the shadows." I should have also fled then and there, but I had only found more questions instead of answers. Against all better judgments, I stayed at the door and kept my eyes trained on the figure inside. I heard the tearing off the parcel before I spied his ill assorted hand snatching up needle and thread from the table. A terrible sound rang through the room like the tearing of wet meat. As I saw their hands fiddle with the parcel's contents... Spurts of a dark fluid sprayed out across the table, along with tiny bits of some strange solid matter, whose origin I still refused to contemplate. Despite the gruesome connotations, I was not deterred. If anything, I was drawn in by the display of lack thereof. I had to know what depraved madness was being performed in that infernal place and more importantly, what it was being performed on. My questions compounded with every second that I remained, and I slowly crept into the room, straining to see what work the figure was conducting. Soon, however, the figure stopped their fumbling and looked straight into the mirror. Every atom of air froze as the man turned his head from side to side. Beautiful, he muttered like a sculptor inspecting his masterpiece. I couldn't wait a moment longer. I had to know what was going on even if to the death of me. As it turns out, that wasn't hyperbole. In my ravenous curiosity, I leaned into the room just too much and outright lost my balance. I regained it quite easily, but I had to slam a foot down in order to do so, which sent a thunderous echo racing through the room. My heart stopped dead in its tracks at that moment, as if suddenly the entire world had turned its eyes to me. In an instant, the figure spun in its seat and showed to me the most God-wrenching sight that I will ever see. I had hoped to merely of seeing a patchwork face staring back at me, but instead, I saw that of my mother gazing across the room with that jubilant grin beaming back at me. Lined her face was a ring of stitchwork securing it in place connected to a needle in the figure's hand by a bloody thread. Do not mistake what I say. It was not merely an elderly woman's face. It was my mother's. I could never mistake that smile. In an instant, however, such a jovial feature twisted into an expression of the purest rage a man could hope to produce. That face, which I had loved and admired for so long, flung every ounce of spite it could at me in a way, I can only recall in my nightmares. The figure snapped to their feet, jabbing the needle in my direction with a mismatched hand and howled, Get out! I'm not ready! Get out! I complied in an instant, fleeing from the spot with the ferocity of a true coward. I tore down the stairs, bashing through every staff member that even thought of stopping me, and I burst out into the night. Chased all the while by the thought of what I had seen. I haven't left my home since. I do not dare disclose my findings for even I do not believe them. I prayed for madness every night. If it means what I have seen was not real. But the memory only falls into greater clarity with each passing day. My thoughts are plagued with the questions that I have been left with. I wonder what I even saw that night. Perhaps it was the Kant in question, though I pray that is not the truth. I could not imagine a world where a man could subject himself to such a disfiguration. But what else could it be? Whatever that abomination is, its words have plagued me above all else. I fear what might happen when it is ready, or even what ready may look like for that demon. A part of me does not dare to imagine what beastly creation could be birthed from such an outcome. Yet another theory haunts me even more. I saw what that creature had done to itself. The parts that it had stitched to itself. Mangled as they were, they were human nonetheless. My fear that its end goal is to be human enough to walk invisible amongst our ranks. And for what reason I cannot say, nor do I wish to know. I only dread the day when such a demon is allowed to tread where it wishes and to do as it pleases. When it is no longer satiated by the dead alone. My Fear, I Was a Security Guard for the Devil Written by Avatar of Horror There is evil in this world. I'm sure of that now more than ever. I grew up in a strict Roman Catholic household and was taught by nuns as early as I can recall that the devil was out there and that I needed to be strong to fight it off. After recent events, I'm not so sure that begins to describe that struggle. After serving in the army, I got my pension and got hooked up by a friend with a security company called Cerberus. The company had a bit of a shady reputation, but it was easy money. Mostly just sitting at a desk at corporate sites and wandering hallways at night. My boss called me a month ago and asked if I might be interested in providing security for a very special site. When he told me how much they were offering from the role, I day near fell out of my chair. This was retirement-level money. And after seeing dollar signs in my eyes like a children's cartoon, I blurted out, Yes. My boss stated this would be a remote assignment and I would have to stay at the location for three months. That was beyond out of the ordinary, but for the pay, hey, I was willing to do whatever. Driving the next day, all I could focus on were the future zeros in my bank account. I was a poor kid who joined the military to pay for college and this kind of money would change my life. After hours of driving into increasing the mountainous terrain deep in the Appalachian, I was caught by surprise when the GPS said that I had arrived. Ahead of me was a thick rod, iron gate, and a buzzer. I got out of the car and hit the buzzer which crackled with static. Hello? I called to no response. I'm here from Cerberus Security. As more static followed, with the strange sound of gear the large gate flipped open and I got back in my car to drive in. Even here in the mountains I was expecting some sort of corporate building But I was not prepared to drive forward and see a large white neoclassical building Sitting behind rows of trees shedding their leaves in the autumn weather I drove forward stopping in front of the entryway which was flanked by two large columns Parked there was a black car and a man in a black suit waiting for me (laughs) So you're the new person the man in the black suit called out to me as I got out of the car. I walked over with my hand extended, but the man did not reciprocate. Uh, yes, showing my security badge. The man in the black suit looked me up and down and I felt like I was back in basic, getting inspected by the sergeant. After a moment, he nodded and motioned for me to follow him, ascending up these stairs to the large wooden double doors. Well, I hope your constitution lives up to the recommendation. Come on I didn't get any details on this job I trailed off as the suited man walked ahead of me Seemingly happy to ignore me walking further inside As we walked into the building It was a dark wood and I came to a grand staircase with rooms and halls branching from the main foyer I stopped for a moment staring at the place It was beautiful but there was something just off that I could have put my finger on I chalked it up to the old military paranoia and hustled to catch up with the man in the suit. He motioned me over to a room off the main hallway and gestured for me to enter. Here's the security station Will you'll be working at. I walked over to the security desk. There was a dozen monitors of various rooms and hallways. Nearby was a bed and what looked like a fridge and a small kitchen. So what does a remote place like this need round-the-clock security for? I asked. This job is for a very important client. I can't give you any more details. But good news for you, your job is to just formally watch the place at night. The student man responded. He pointed to the kitchen area. This place is fully stocked food-wise for your term here, so settle in. You can patrol the first floor here. If a door is locked, just leave it alone. The second floor isn't off-limits, but it's just a bedroom, so no sleeping up there. He paused. You are not allowed under any circumstances into any of the locked doors here. Failure to comply with that last requirement will mean immediate termination. What if there's an issue that I need to get to? There won't be. He said in a tone that broached, no disagreement. There's a landline as your cell phone won't get crap out here if there's any problems. He continued, clearly trying to change the subject. Now I feel like I'm a house caretaker, not a security guard. I commented, hoping that he would take the bait and give me some answers. The only job here is to not let anything in or out for the term. Making me a bit isolated, so if you can't handle it, call and we'll relieve you, but your pay will be drastically prorated. The longer you stay, the more you get up to the agreed-upon amount. What do you mean, let anything out? I asked, my head slightly cocked as if I would miss that comment. The man in the suit waved a hand of dismissal. Turn a phrase. Just stick to the instructions I gave and you'll enjoy a nice fat paycheck at the end of this. There's more details in a packet left on your desk there. Also, remember the security office is the safest place here. He began to head to the exit briskly as I followed after. This was, now officially, the strangest, freaking job that I would ever had. And if you've ever served, you know exactly how hard that is to top. I tried calling out to the man, but he got in his car and drove off. And I watched him pull away in a hurry. The first few days at the place were uneventful. I unpacked and settled in, trying to make a routine to keep life ordered. Sleeping in the day and working at night was second nature at this point. I had gone through the instructions that were left, which gave details about everything from what keys went to what, and how to adjust the thermostat. The first floor was as grandiose and ornate as it was mundane. The place seemed like some old estate, but who the heck would want to build it way up in the middle of nowhere, it left me shrugging my shoulders. After the first week, I wasn't sleeping well. I did two tours in Iraq, and I kept having memories of the bad stuff that went down there. The dream ended with me being surrounded by bodies, my squadmates, enemies, civilians. Everyone around me was massacred with me at the center of it all. My alarm went off to start the night shift, and I woke up in a cold sweat, grabbing a coffee and shaking off the dream that I sat down at these security monitors as I had for the last few days. A whole lot of nothing as usual. I took another swig of coffee when something caught my eye on the monitor in the main hallway. It was a dark movement across the screen, and I blinked a few times to make sure, but nothing was there. I walked out of the security room to the foyer to look around, but nothing was present, but there was a door open. It was the only door on the first floor that was locked when I got here and I just figured it was a supply closet or something. Trudging over, the door was agape and I poked my head in, expecting to find someone, but it was some sort of study or personal library. I figured rich, eccentric types just had places like this. I was turning about to close the door when I saw a notebook on the desk. If you ask me even now why I went and looked, I don't know, but there was something about it that called to me. It was a simple thing in a room full of books, but perhaps sitting alone on the desk is why it stood out. The small emblem of Cerebus security was emblazoned on its front. I picked it up and opened a random page, and was a bit disappointed that it was all gibberish. It was written over and over again, so I remember it though, even now, I don't know what it means. GUR6GU my flipped to the first page and thankfully it was legible. It was a log. The notations were all time and location in the house like it was tracking something. Not knowing what any of it meant, I grabbed the book and went back to the security office. I kept on the lookout that night but no other blackness or strange things occurred. Well, until I fell asleep. Again, the dream came. I was alone surrounded by bodies everywhere. I called out for help for anyone to save me from these sights and a voice came back. Release me. The buzzing of the alarm woke me as sweat drenched my bed as my breathing was heavy. I read the book again after I got up. From the dates and locations it slowly got less legible and then it was this same thing over and over again before it stopped. The place was definitely getting on my nerves, but the fortune in my future puts a doubt aside. I won't forget it until the day I leave this earth, as that night at 6.12pm, a black shadow darted across the monitor in the main entryway. Rushing out of the security room, I caught a glimpse of the darkness running down one of the hallways and I chased after. I turned the corner and there was nothing except the seemingly endless corridor. What the heck was that? I called out, half expecting a response. I walked down the hallway with each step feeling like it was a mile in length. When I reached the end, there was a wooden door like the rest but it had no door handle. My palm was placed on the door handle before I even really thought about what I was doing. There was what I can only describe as an energy to it, a life. My ear was on the door next, like I was a child listening to my parents. There was a throbbing sound, like a heartbeat, and I shot backwards, stumbling and falling. Now, screw this. I called out and rushed back to the security office and I grabbed the landline. I smashed the keys listed next to the phone as the dial tone and a deep voice answered Are you okay? What is this place? What am I doing here? A silence was on the other end. "'Are you okay?' My breathing was returning to normal. "'Yeah, no, I don't know. There's some strange stuff here. I want out.' More silence greeted me. "'Remember, if you leave, you will not receive full payment. I don't know what freaky stuff is going on up here, but it's not worth it. Your pay will be doubled if you complete the assignment.' The response was quick as if it was expected. I froze. That was a sum of money I couldn't even comprehend. Double? Yes, but you must complete your term there. What is in here that is worth that much money? What am I providing security for? Silence again. Are you agreeing to stay? I swore about a dozen times before responding. Fine yes, but if this gets more crazy, I'm out of here no matter what. Another long pause. You didn't go in any of the locked rooms, did you? I thought back to the study and the handle this door. No. Good, just remember, the security office is the safest place in the building. The other end of the phone hung up. I stood in a sea of bodies and I looked up at the sun above. In shock, I see it turn to a sickly black eclipse. This cloudless sky above begins to rain, but it is thick and viscous. It is blood that turns me in the ground, crimson. I scream. From the pile of bodies around me, their erectus hands grabbed at me, pulling me into their depths. I struggle to no success. I stare at the faces of the dead pulling at me. Their mouths moved unnaturally. The words impossibly coming together in a rising sound. Release me. I shot up in bed. My breathing was labored. I grabbed the crucifix around my neck attempting to find some comfort. The dreams were getting worse every night. I dreaded sleep and the exhaustion was getting to me. I had confined myself to the security room. I figured if this was all in my head... Then There wasn't a need for me to leave and if I wasn't crazy, well best to stay in the area that monitored everything. I kept going back to the logbook. Was it tracking the same thing that I saw too? I feared that this was the last security guard's work. I feared what that meant for me. The hour was late and on the monitor for the foyer, a black shadow crossed the screen. I closed my eyes, it's all just in your head. It's in your head. It's not real. Opening them back up like a child hiding from a monster under their bed, the monitor was clear and I breathed a sigh of relief. The dozen monitors then blinked in unison as the feeds cut to static. No, 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 come on, you piece of crap. I called out in anger, hitting the side of the screens as if that would somehow fix it. A guttural and bestial cry was heard outside the security office as I froze. It was as if the house itself was groaning in anguish. Swearing at myself, I opened the door to the security room and poked my head out cautiously. The lights in the hallway were off, which would not have been the case. I had left all the lights on since I got here. Another groaning sound in my skin crawled. I rushed back to the security room and grabbed the landline, but there was no dial tone. I threw the phone down and grabbed my flashlight. Illuminating the dark hallways, I raced to the main doors. I was done with this crab. Over and over again, I pushed, pulled, and slammed into the doors, but they stood uncaring of my struggles. I remembered there was an electronic lock on the door, but with no power they seemed sealed. I would need to find a breaker or something to reset the system. When I headed back to the security office, though, it felt like I was trudging in mud through the darkness to get there. A tingle on the neck, and I snapped around to find only my flashlight's beam. A whisper from back where I had come from. Help me. And I ran as fast as possible. Inside the normally low-lit room, there were symbols glowing on the walls. I am enough of a man of faith to know what pentagrams look like and they were etched again and again on the walls. The sigil burned in shades of orange and crimson, and their sight made my senses hurt. I fought through the disorientation to get to the instructions packet. The groaning sounds outside the room seemed to get louder and louder as I searched. Frantically, I found the listing for the circuit room, and my heart sank. It was at the end of the hallway next to the door, with no handle. As I walked through the dark hallway, I had millions of questions and simultaneously didn't care. All I wanted was to get out of this accursed place. The corridor off the main hallway seemed to stretch for eternity. My flashlight was inexplicably unable to penetrate fully into the darkness ahead. Each door along the hallway I went past appeared warped in shapes bending at unnatural angles. Whispers in the darkness had my head darting left and right, trying to listen for the sores. Voices ranging from dead soldiers I served, with the people I had never known, called to me. Save me. Release me. Free me. Over and over, the bewildering cacophony threw me off balance. I stopped and put a hand to the wall to catch myself. It wasn't a wall, though. It was a door, a door with no handles. I fell backwards, falling down as I realized where I was. The door was glowing, its arched frame illuminated. Above the door, the image of the black sun from my dreams burned brightly. Let me out of here! I called out in equal amounts of terror and anger. Release me! A voice called back. A handprint appeared on the door. Let me out! The handprint begged me to put mine up to it. I could feel the power beyond as if such a thing could be quantified. It was pulsating, breathing, with energy. How I knew, I could not comprehend. But I knew that if I did, if I had placed my hand there, all I could want in this world would be mine. My hand reached out as the imprint in the door beckoned it. With a hair's breadth, my hand paused. Something about the sickly black sun above hit me. It hit me as the purest expression of evil and malevolence in the world. All that I had seen in combat, all that I had done, it seemed personified in the image. It was greed and temptation, and I recoiled at the last moment. A roar of anger shook the house as my hand pulled away. The glowing door rocked and quaked as I struggled to get to my feet. The entire building seemed to shake with fury. I ran back, trying to find the door to the break room. It had to be nearly, or at least I desperately hoped. The hallway bent and stretched and compressed as I ran through searching for a door. My hand found a handle and I pushed it forward. Inside, there was the faintest of illumination. More pentagrams were related around the room, burning in unnatural colors. There were stacks of electronics here and I desperately looked for anything that might be a circuit box. I tugged on my leg and I looked down to see an inky darkness locked around my ankle. My chin hurt next as I was pulled down and I hit the floor. The tendril was pulling me back through the doorway. With every amount of strength I tried to find anything to grip onto and hold myself in the room. A lucky glance to my right and I saw a switch for the main power breaker. The pulling of my leg ripped and tore my skin, but I fought through. The roaring and shaking of the building broke my senses. All I focused on, though, was that breaker switch. I used my strength to pull myself forward, each movement painful. My hand reached out, and it was so close. The building screamed in defiance of my actions. Just another few inches, and... I woke up. A white-tiled room greeted my eyes as I blinked. I looked down and I was in a hospital bed. Sunlight glistened through the window. I sat up in confusion and a nurse nearby noticed and came to me. Whoa, easy there, she called to me. I shook my head as pain cascaded through my body. Where am I? St. Michael's Hospital. You were unconscious when you were brought in. What? Who brought me in? Don't know. He was in a dark suit and said that you were in some kind of accident up at the Wormwood Manor. That place never has anything good come from it. What do you mean? My head was so groggy. Well, old rumor has it that place was some sort of meeting place for satanic rituals. A bunch of people went missing up there some decades back. Satanic rituals? I mumbled out. I know this might be stressful, so let me get the doctor, turning and leaving me with unanswered questions. A pain on my chest caused me to look under my gown. There, in scar tissue, was a pentagram. I clawed as it if it would wipe away, but it sat there stinging. I looked at the table next to my bed as I panicked over the find and there was an envelope. It was all white, save for the symbol of the Cerberus Security Company, I opened it and inside was a short message. Your payment will be made in full. Your constitution met all expectations. You now have the mark of Cerberus. Guard it well. I looked back out the window, trying to even begin to process what I had experienced. As I did, a shadow was cast from the sky. An eclipse. I got out of bed pulling wires along with me. I stared up at the dark sun. I stared at my chest turret. My chest turret and the symbol there glowed. I am best friends with a wendigo. Written by Kessel the Viking. Sometimes things happen to us that we just cannot explain. No matter how many resources are available, or what information we can find, there are things that can never be understood. And that is a commanding factor of life. Now, a question. I know some, if not many of you have had friends, even best friends that disappear from your life without a rhyme or a reason. That very same thing happened to me with my friend, Marquez. We were best friends throughout high school and carried the friendship down well into our 20s, but one day he simply disappeared. I don't mean that he was reported missing and the police were involved. I just mean that he left without telling me, his best friend. I spoke to his mother and she said that he had gone on a trip to northern Alaska. When I had asked her why, she said, ''He never gave me a reason.'' I could hear the sorrowful tone in her voice, like myself as she missed him too. But out of nowhere he came back. He told no one that he had returned in one day. He showed up at my doorstep as if he had never left. I admit that he looked good, better than I had remembered. He seemed healthy if you can understand that. Marcus, you're back. I remarked bewildered. Yeah man, he said in his smooth demeanor. He had his hands tucked into his pockets of the jean jacket that he was wearing. Got back a couple days ago. You look well. Where have you been? I asked casually. I noticed that his face was a flushed red, but it was probably just the lighting outside because the sun was setting. Yeah, thanks. I've just been traveling, you know, finding myself, he answered but he seemed indifferent about the conversation. It made me wonder why he came here if he wasn't looking to talk. Well, that's cool. Did you want to come in? I asked while gesturing my hand through the door. He nodded and brushed past me into my home. Thanks, Derek, he said nonchalantly, as if this was a routine occurrence. Is something up? I asked as they closed the door behind me. Marcus flipped his wavy blonde hair inside. No, not really. I just have a proposition for you. It was strange that this was how I decided to start the first conversation between us in a long time. A proposition? Forgive me for saying this, but we haven't spoken in quite some time, man, and I don't know if I'm really in the position to dive headfirst into something new. No, no, it's not like that, began Marcus. He didn't appear slighted by my response which was welcoming to see. "'I was just wondering if you would be interested in coming with me on a trap. A vacation of sorts. It wouldn't be long, just a week up north.' "'With who? You?' I asked with a hint of scrutiny. "'Yeah, just me,' he said quickly. For some reason, his fingers were twitching like he could barely control himself from having a breakdown of some kind. "'Why so sudden?' And why me? I mean, Marcus, where have you actually been this whole time? I find it strange that you would come to me of all people for this hurried request of yours. I need someone to come with me. It's important that you understand, Derek. I'm not the same person I was when I left. I'm something much more unique. But I cannot be left to the masses. I must be quelled. He was speaking in completely vague sentences the context of which I couldn't understand. I have to be honest with you, Marcus. I don't know what the heck you're saying to me right now. I wasn't going to lie, but I saw a slight shift in his eyes upon hearing my candor. He sat down on my recliner and clapped his hands together. Listen, are you in or not? He wouldn't even look me in the face when he asked. He simply hung his head with his eyes on the floor. "'Well, I don't know. Where would we be going, exactly? "'A cabin up north. Once we get there, I'll give you a list of instructions that you must adhere to. "'I promise you will understand.' "'I took a deep breath. Clearly, Marcus was in distress and needed help. "'I wasn't going to leave him to fend off against whatever demons were riding his shoulders.' I figured he had become an addict and wanted someone to look after him while he got himself cleaned up. Uh, I suppose, I said quietly. Awesome, thanks, Derek, he said hastily. You won't have to pay for anything. I've got that all covered. Just be ready tomorrow morning and we'll head up there. Tomorrow? Dang, that's definitely short notice. I said, already thinking about what I would tell my boss. ''Oh, don't worry about work, man. Just trust me, even if you've never trusted anyone.'' He remarked as if he read my mind. He then stood up and began walking to the door. ''I don't know what happened to you, but something's definitely different.'' I imagined as I opened the door for him. ''You don't know the half of it,'' he said before walking outside. ''I'll see you in the morning.'' Bring anything you're comfortable with bringing, but don't overpack. I nodded even though he was facing away from me, and he walked off down the sidewalk. How had he got here? Obviously, he didn't drive if he was walking. Something seriously weird was going on with him. My boss was fine with me taking some time off. I figured it wouldn't exactly last a week anyway, so my head all would be well. The next morning I was ready to go when Marcus arrived just after 9am to pick me up. I brought my things outside. My own, only packed some snacks, a flashlight, blankets, a pillow, my medication, and some clothing for the outdoorsy life. The cabin has beds and blankets, said Marcus from the driver's seat of the old SUV that he arrived in. Yeah, well, I prefer to feel a sense of comfort that I can only achieve by having things that belong to me. "'If you say so,' he remarked. "'His lack of engagement was already growing stale. "'I got in the passenger seat and we sped away without another word shared between us. "'Every so often I would glance at Marcus to study him. "'While he did seem healthy, there was something innately different about him that I couldn't put my finger on. "'He was jittery, easily startled, and on edge.' We drove for a good six hours before pulling off at a rest area. Marcus seemed alert, but for some reason he said, We're going to sleep here for the night. The night? Have you gone blind, dude? It's barely three in the afternoon. Yeah, I know, but I'm hungry and I need to rest, said Marcus quietly. I can drive, man. What's the issue? I asked reassuringly. He turned to look at me with viciously bloodshot eyes, as if he had been staring at the sun the entire drive. No, you don't know the way. You can tell me the way. I have a GPS. No, Derek, close your eyes or do something for a bit. I'm hungry. The way that he said hungry was like a ravenous animal, like his desire to feed was overthrowing his decision-making. Fine, fine, go get something to eat then. I said, kicking my feet up on the dash and leaning the seat back. Marcus stammered when he responded. No, not yet. When night falls, I will. You're acting really strange, man. Is everything good? Instead of responding, he only nodded slowly. I didn't say anything back, but I did watch him from the corner of my eye for some time. I noticed that he was watching every single person who walked into the rest stop. ...like a starving fiend. I passed the time by reading on my phone, listening to music through my headphones, and after nightfall, I closed my eyes. Up until I decided to try and sleep, Marcus hadn't taken his eyes off the entrance to the rest stop. I can't even recall if I saw him blink once. Luckily, I managed to fall asleep relatively quickly. However, I was awoken abruptly when Marcus heaved his body back into the driver's seat as if he were running from something. He was absolutely covered in blood, his mouth and most of his face, his hands in his shirt and pants, everywhere. Marcus, what the heck, man? I asked intensely. He swallowed audibly. I feel better now. We can keep going. I could see that his teeth were stained red from the dim light produced by the rest area. No way, man. You're going to tell me what happened to you. Without looking at me, he said, ''I had to eat, Derek. We all have to eat.'' ''What are you talking about, Marcus? What did you eat, a barrel of blood?'' ''Not quite.'' He then started the vehicle and shifted it in reverse. I reached out and shifted it back in the park. When I did, he turned towards me and grabbed my wrist. His grip was insurmountably strong, it felt like he could crush my arm if he had the mind to do it. Derek, let go, was all that he said while his entire body was visibly trembling. I didn't know what else to do, so I listened to him. I carefully brought my hand back to my lap as he shifted and reversed once more before bringing us back onto the freeway. I couldn't keep my eyes off him, but he wouldn't look at me anymore, not until we got to the cabin. The overwhelming smell of blood that filled the vehicle i had gagged a few times from it. The pungent aroma wafted off of Marcus, and it was almost unbearable. I checked my phone. Of course, there was no signal out here, and I caught a glimpse of him watching me from the other side of the SUV. There's no point in calling the cops, said Marcus through his bloodstained teeth. Tell me what you did back there. I shouted at him unsure of what else to say. I did what I had to, he said while walking towards the front door of the cabin. Marcus, please man, I can help. Just tell me what's going on. He froze as if he really was about to answer me, but instead he reached into his pocket and pulled out a set of keys. Then he unlocked the door and went in without saying another word. I stood outside for a long time, I didn't want to go inside and see him sitting there painted with blood, but something told me that Marcus needed help and so I went in. He was sitting on a dusty couch, in fresh clothing, he must have showered too because his skin was clear of the red tinge that had dominated it before. One thing was different though, he had lost most of his hair. I don't mean little clumps or bald spots. I mean there were only a few strands of hair remaining. Furthermore, he had patches of raw skin on his face and I'm sure they were on his body as well. I sat in the chair across from him and observed his seemingly deteriorating form. His eyes were fixed on the rickety floorboards beneath us and he had his palms placed flat on his thighs. After five solid minutes without so much as a twitch, he finally raised his head. His eyes met mine, but his were almost black. There were dark blue veins forming a webbed pattern from the corners of his eye sockets, and his lips were dry and cracked. When he spoke, it was with a breathy and raspy tone. I'm going to tell you a story, Derek. When I'm finished, you you will do something for me. You cannot say no, you must do it. I can't make any promise. You must, Marcus suddenly shouted. He had raised himself up further, but something wasn't right. His spine was longer somehow, like it had been stretched, making him appear much taller even when sitting down. Okay, okay, I said timidly. His shouting struck a drastically fearful chord within me. Good, he mumbled under his breath, and then he began his story. As you know, I went to Alaska, and wasn't for nothing. I had actually met a girl out there on an nap. He grinned slightly, but it quickly faded. She was perfect, well, for me at least. He stopped for a moment, and I noticed that he was eyeing my hands, but then he continued. Anyway, her name was Claire, and we really hit it off. It was one of those love-at-first-sights type of moments. Seriously, Derek, she was everything I could have ever wanted or needed in a woman. I uttered a sound of acknowledgement, so he knew that I was listening as he went on. She was a simple person, and she lived in an old town. I can't even remember the name of it now, but we made a life for ourselves there. However, she started acting strange. She would ask to have guests over constantly as if I wasn't enough. I don't say that in a jealous way. I mean, she literally wanted someone else over every single day, and she reeked of desperation. It was like her life depended on it. While he spoke, one of his fingernails fell off and landed with a quiet ticking sound on the floor. Marcus didn't seem to mind because he kept talking. Eventually I caved. I invited one of her friends over, a local guy who worked at the town's bakery. About an hour before he arrived, Claire called me into the bedroom. She had this weird, almost evil tone in her voice, but I disregarded it. I thought that she may have been looking to get intimate before this friend of hers arrived, but that wasn't the case at all. Are you sick, Marcus? I asked as I watched two more fingernails slide off his fingers onto the floor. He didn't answer me, not directly anyway. He looked up at me and his left eye clotted over with a milky white color. Was he dying right before me? Marcus picked at one of these scaly gray patches of skin on his hand, and only made his other nails fall off but he didn't seem to mind because he went on as I entered our bedroom the door closed behind me Claire was standing there with a rope and a gag that only solidified my assumption about her need for intimacy so I let her tie me up but instead of getting frisky she gagged me and left the room I tried to get her attention but obviously she couldn't hear me how long were you like that? I asked, gently. I wanted him to feel like I had genuine interest. Longer than I expected. I heard her friend come inside and I tried to yell to get his attention, but it was no use. That's when the scream started. There were horrendous noises of agony coming from the other room, and they weren't from Claire. He sighed again faintly. During the conversation... His entire body had begun turning a pale gray color, and the last bits of hair that he had left fell to the floor. There was this squelching sound, and another sound I can only liken to a saw-cutting meat. I hated every moment being tied to that bed in our barely-lit room. Where are you going with this, Marcus? Are you saying that Claire killed her friend? She didn't just kill him, Derek. She ate him. What? I exclaimed vehemently as my stomach turned. Yeah, she ate him and when she was full, she brought the scraps of what was left to him into the bedroom. She removed the gag and told me if I didn't eat. She would do the same to me. Did you do it? I asked with curiosity. He looked down and then up before slowly nodding. I did. Marcus, man, I don't know what to say. Just keep listening, he said, uh, solemnly. I had to hold my mouth open while she let the blood of her friend drip inside. She told me that if I did, then I would never be sick again. I would never worry about anything but eating. It made me remember all the time she had gone out for the night, only to come back looking more youthful than before. I shifted in my chair and Marcus stared at my hands again for far too long, I was growing uncomfortable by his lustful gaze. The next time that he spoke, his voice had diminished into something gravelly and hoarse. I did not fight her, I did what she had asked. I hoped that she had just lost her mind when she was satisfied and I would make my escape but I was wrong. The flesh that is, the consumption of it made me a new being and gave me strength vitality, and an iron constitution. I felt the best that I had ever felt in years. But then came the hunger. Hunger? I questioned calmly. Although I was reminded of what he mentioned how hungry he was at the rest area. Yes, Derek. The hunger for human flesh was insatiable. It didn't matter how much I ate. My body would feel like it had been further deprived of sustenance. I craved warm, running blood, almost like a vampire and Claire did too. Before we knew it, we had destroyed the entire town, and nobody saw it coming. But after that, Claire, she turned into something feral, something less human and more animalistic. Like, like you are now, I asked with a hint of concern. Yes, she became this creature. It was a grotesque and malformed. She wasn't my Claire anymore. So I did what any loving partner would do. I put her out of her misery. You What? I ended her suffering. I see. That's when I came back down here. I couldn't live up there alone, but I also realized... I couldn't be left alive at all. Derek... I desperately want to be with Claire again. Whether there's still a place for my soul in heaven, or if I'll be sentenced to an eternal hell for the things I've done, as long as Claire's there, I'll be happy. What are you saying exactly, Marquez? I want you to kill me. You what? I admit. I chuckled a little bit because the notion was ridiculous. I want you to take the shotgun out of the gun safe and take my head off. So, I can't devour another innocent person. Marcus was being serious. I could tell by his tone, and the longer this conversation went on, the more his body had changed. I finally managed to ask the question I desperately wanted to know the answer to Did you eat someone at the rest area? I ate an entire family, he said without remorse. I didn't know what to say. I mean, what could you say? All I could do was gasp while remaining at a loss for words. I called the police from the payphone afterwards, so they should be there now. He began harshly. I chose that particular rest area because the cameras don't work. I had staked it out before even coming to you. It was all planned. But I did it for you. For me. You ate an entire family for me. No, I mean I made it so you couldn't be connected to what happened. The police are none the wiser, and in reality, you've done nothing wrong. This is messed up, Marcus. I know, I know, I'm sorry, Derek. I need you to honor my request now, though, before it's too late. What happens if I don't? I asked out of curiosity. Marcus stood up, hulkingly tall and groaned, a bellowing, low, rumbling roar. You cannot deny my desire for death and my pain like I ended the pain for Claire. His breathing was rapid and fierce, but he managed to calm himself down. I apologize for scaring you, he said in a gruff voice. Marcus, you were my best friend once, I can't do this to you. You have to. This is why I came to you because you still are my best friend and I didn't want to ask a random stranger. They wouldn't understand, but you, you can understand. His face grew long and it was accompanied by many painful grunts by Marcus. "'You need to do this for me. Oh, I don't want to hurt anyone else. Even now, the hunger calls to me. It is taking every ounce of strength that I have left to resist lashing out at you and devouring every tasty morsel of flesh covering your ripe and ravishly delicious body.' He shook his head like a madman before his eyes met mine once again. Please, Derek, I'm begging you. I don't know what changed in me, but hearing my once best friend pleading for his death no longer perturbed my emotions. I stared at his rapidly transforming body for an indeterminate amount of time before getting up and walking to the safe. It was already unlocked and he must have done it while I was outside. I reached in and grabbed the only gun in the case, the shotgun that Marcus had mentioned. I assumed that it was already loaded. If Marcus had planned this much, then surely he had planned that too. I walked back to the safe and sat down, and a gnarled, black-toothed grin spread on Marcus's veiny gray face. Thank you, Derek. I can't live with myself any longer and this is the best option. Do not take pity on me. Do not feel guilty or ashamed. Take pride in the fact that you have expelled a ruthless creature from this world. I pumped the shotgun and aimed at his head. My heart was pounding and my hands were sweating. Oh, and one more thing, he remarked. In the glove box of the SUV are my life savings. Take it all, then do with it what you will. I ask that you never tell my mother about this or anyone else. It will be our secret. He then took one last deep breath. Okay, I'm ready to do it. Just as I was pulling the trigger... Marcus's body twisted and contorted into a far more disturbing visage, and as the shot rang throughout the cabin, he splattered against the couch and the floors and walls and even the ceiling. His painful shrieking stopped and his body ceased all movement. It was over. I sat there with the shotgun in my lap, still aimed at Marcus for most of the day. I couldn't bring myself to get up or do anything else but stare at my former best friend. Eventually, I found the will to stand up. After I was on my wobbly two feet, I took a sheet from one of the bedrooms and draped it over Marques. I searched the entire grounds of the cabin for a shovel because I wanted to bury him but I couldn't find one. It was cold outside anyway and I'm sure he wouldn't want me to die from digging his own grave. I did however find some matches. It was the middle of winter so I thought it would be better to just burn the cabin down. I didn't want Marcus's body to rot there on the cold couch, and as I dropped a lit match on it, the fabric immediately engulfed into a mighty blaze. I walked out of the cabin and got into the driver's seat of the SUV, and that's when I remembered Marcus had the keys. I couldn't help but laugh about the irony of it all. Marcus had left ten grand in the glove box for me. I ended up having to hike down the driveway and up the road until somebody stopped to pick me up. They drove me to the nearest town, and Grand Marais, I think it was called. It was a small town where the people were friendly. I rented a room at their local inn and had been there for about three days, just thinking about Marcus and what he went through. I thought about if I was responsible for the family that he had heard and ate, but I had no idea what was going on at the time. I was only along for the ride until I had to play my part, my role in ending Marcus's painful life. If your best friend or even a friend returns to you after having been gone and without contact for years, be careful if they ask for you to take a trip with them. And always remember, the mysteries of the world can outweigh grounded reality. Nothing is as it seems, even Marcus. is. Be safe, everyone. I hope none of you looked down on at me. My first search and rescue experience didn't go as planned. Written by Beardify. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret... She winked and swirled her cocktail. I'm what you might call a search and rescue tourist. Huh? I was sure that I hadn't heard her over the jazz piano and muffled bar conversations around us. Now you heard right. She leaned in close. Come on, what do you see in the news every day? The worst side of people. Crime, corruption, selfishness. But when someone goes missing... You should see it. The whole community comes together. What are you talking about? I got certified in search and rescue years ago. And now I go wherever there's a need. Look, I've struggled with depression my whole life. Most of the time it feels like the planet is doomed. Life isn't worth living. And things are only getting worse. But when you're out there looking for somebody, sharing hugs and hot coffee... And candlelight vigils. It feels like there's actually hope. I mean you might actually be the one to rescue a person. Who would otherwise disappear without a trace. Or solve an unexplained mystery. Isn't that better than a hangover. A sunburn and an overpriced motel. How well I remember that fateful conversation. All I'd wanted was to plan a trip with my new girlfriend Roxanne. We had only been dating for a few weeks, and we were still sort of feeling each other out, trying to see if this thing would be a good fit. That's why I was so surprised that she mentioned her little secret, one of many as it turned out, but that was later. Back in the cocktail bar, I was still poppy love infatuated with the geeky, unpredictable redhead across the table from me, And if she had said that her hobby was bear wrestling or digging up corpses, I probably would have gone along just as eagerly. Just like a hiker wandering off the trail or a child swimming too deep, I was entering an uncharted world where what I knew no longer applied. That's how I found myself in a tacky pine-scented cabin in Halleck's Point, Wyoming, buttoning up to go look for Bryce Hartford. Bryce was seven years old and 52 hours missing. Bryce's mother, Carmen, had been watching him build a snow fort in the backyard when she realized that she had left her phone inside. When Carmen returned, all that was left to Bryce was a small blue mitten hanging from the handle of a plastic shovel. Her son was gone. On the drive out to Halleck's Point, Roxanne explained to me that the families of the disappeared. Almost always respond in the same way, beginning with denial. Bryce must have just gone around front or come around the front door, Carmen supposes. Maybe he was even hiding on purpose. She searches the whole house before moving on to worry. Carmen starts screaming Bryce's name, searching the ankle-deep snow and skeletal trees behind her house, until their footprints crisscross the undergrowth. She makes calls to neighbors, her wife Abby, and finally the police, whose gloomy warnings inspire her. Panic. Dusk turns the woods blue. Officers, reporters, well-wishers, and rubberneckers come and go from the kitchen. Carmen sobs into her tea while Abby rubs her shoulders, and the mustachioed police officers, questions about unusual strangers around the house, or personal enemies, lead to... Paranoia. Carmen and Abby stare sleeplessly at the ceiling, wondering who on earth could wish evil on their sweet little boy. Overnight, rumors spread like wildfire through the small town. The outpouring of public support the next day gives the desperate family a bit of hope. Maybe Bryce just got lost in the woods. Carmen and Abby's property is bordered on three sides by the National Forest after all. And surely, with all these searches and thermal imaging helicopters and handmade posters all over town, Bryce will be found, right? That hope had mostly faded by the chilly morning of our search. These searches who had stomped through the nearby forest and sipped donated hot cocoa were a lot less eager after two days of finding nothing. The icy rain didn't help and neither did the fact that the extended search entered areas that were truly remote. The cliffs out there had an eerie, watchful quality, glowering down on the volunteers while they fought, icy thorn bushes and a swampy mock. When Roxanne and I pulled up to the dirt lot at the end of the forest road, each searcher's face told the same sad story. There's no way that kid is still alive. What on earth are we still doing here? We didn't say where we had come from. Carmen didn't ask. I felt like an imposter when she forced a little smile and squeezed her hands and thanks. Carmen handed us each a photo of the brown-haired, freckly, gap-toothed boy, and a red parka and a gray-knit cap, and blue mittens as well. And then she wished luck to our sad little band. Roxanne and I, Samir and Devon, professional search-and-rescue agents, and the local deputy, Amos Hartford, with his knee-high boots, Smokey the Bear Hat, and grizzled beard. He almost looked like he had just walked out of a 60s western. Alright folks, I want a clean, thorough search. It's bad country out there, ridges, caves, valleys, easy to get turned around. Y'all make sure that you stay inside of the searchers on either side. If you look around and don't see the next in line, blow your whistle. Then we'll pause and regroup. If you find anything or have a problem, same thing, blow the whistle. Remember, We're going a long way off the beaten track today. Lots of people go missing out there every year. Amos took a deep breath. But we find most of them. Let's not give up hope. Move out. Roxanne had insisted that I complete a training course, but what I found at Alex point was nothing like it. The icy woods were too quiet, and this was no simulation. That boy might really be out there. Our lonely voices echoed from the cliffs, and I realized that I was spending more time trying not to get separated from the group than actively searching for traces of Bryce. The forest was riddled with narrow crevices full of leaves and slippery cliffs. It was all I could do to keep my footing, and each step made it obvious that if a seven year old fell out here, he would never be found. The first time I looked to my left and didn't see Roxanne in her bright orange vest, I panicked. Not for her, I'm ashamed to say, but for me. Although I told myself that I was keeping track of our position, the truth was that I had no idea how to get back to the forest road, and I was already sniffling and shivering despite my winter clothing. If I got left out here after nightfall... I heard four other whistles answer my call. Like magic, Roxanne and Samir appeared among the boulders of ahead. My I had simply blundered into a shallow ravine that blocked visibility on both sides. Roxanne looked disappointed, Samir looked worried, and I looked like a fool. Roxanne and Samir said that it was fine and that I had done the right thing, and although I'm sure they sincerely meant it, I was furious with myself. I had cost us and Bryce precious time. I resolved not to do it again. Until I separated myself from the group again, not even an hour later, I had a good excuse, or at least I thought I did. A rustling came from the bushes ahead, and I'd swear that I saw the flash of a child-sized red parka and a gray knit cap disappear into the reeds of the swamp. I forgot all about my whistle. I gave chase, Bryce. I yelled as we had been yelling all day. I smacked away bushes, fought to unstick my boots from the marshy ground, and finally slipped into the mud as I vaulted over a rotten log. By the time that I had straggled back to where I was supposed to be, the others seemed to have been swallowed up by the cliffs. I called for Roxanne's name. I ran forward and then back until I realized that I was only getting myself more lost and time was running out. I blushed when I blew the whistle for the second time that day. Everyone came running, even Deputy Amos and Evan from the far ends of the line. None of them said so, but I could tell they all felt annoyed and let down. Welp, Deputy Amos spat. Might as well break for lunch then. We settled onto the cold rocks to eat our cold sandwiches in a cold wind, and for the most part, we ate in silence except for Roxanne, her conversation with Deputy Amos sounded more like an interrogation, and a few parts stuck out to me later. "'You must not be used to this,' Roxanne sighed. Halleck's Point seems like such a quiet little town.' "'Yeah,' Amos grunted. "'Mostly.' "'Mostly, huh?' Roxanne pressed. "'Trouble in paradise.' "'Well, this ain't the first who's gone missing.' There is a girl back in 97, on the other side by the cattle ranches, just vanished into thin air. Do you think the two are related? Why? Amos finally replied after a long pause. Do you? At this, Amos gave us both a long hard look. It felt like there was a warning in those flinting eyes. Where did you say y'all was from again? Back on our sore feet, we continued deeper into the woods. A few hours later, however, something more than blisters was bothering me. It wasn't just that we had gone further than any seven-year-old could reasonably have gone on his own, or Deputy Amos' unsettling story about the missing girl from all those years ago. It was the time of day. Dusk came early in those broken hills, we should have turned back by afternoon, yet Deputy Amos led us silently on, almost like he already knew what we were going to find. Lost in such a troubling thoughts, I didn't hear the whistles right away. Not just one, but three of them. I stood dumbly for a moment, not realizing what the shrill sound might mean. Boulders blocked my line of sight. Roxanne came running up from my left, asking what was going on. The whistling became even more desperate and disjointed, and then it suddenly stopped. By the time that Roxanne and I scrambled up to the ridge, all sounded movement on our riot had ceased. It was as though Evan, Samir, and Deputy Amos had been swallowed up by the forest. We called their names, blew our own whistles, and swept the area. To no avail, though. I asked Roxanne what she thought had happened. I asked if anything like this had ever happened during her other search-and-rescue tourist experiences, but Roxanne wasn't paying attention to me. Her eyes were fixed on a GPS in her hand, a GPS that even I could see was malfunctioning. With a frown, she returned the GPS to her backpack and then took out a waterproof bag holding a map of the area, a compass, and some fire starters. Roxanne apparently came well-prepared. What do we do in a situation like this, I wondered aloud. Roxanne's expression was inscrutable as she surveyed the cliff top across the valley. We go back. It only took a few minutes for me to be stunned into silence by my girlfriend's unexplained talents. Apparently, there was a lot more to using a compass than pointing it north, and a lot more to maps than X marks the spot. Gorges and rocky slopes prevented us from moving in anything like a straight line, but I never doubted that Roxanne was leading us back home, just not quickly enough. After a few more hours of trudging, it became clear that we would be spending the night in the woods. We made camp in a small clearing, using headlamps for light and we forged for firewood and built a small lean to from fallen logs. We dug out the bottom and used leaves and dirt for insulation. Roxanne seemed pretty on edge. She jumped at every snapping twig or rustle in the frosty undergrowth. I could understand being worried in a situation like ours, but Roxanne wasn't acting like a person who was lost. She was acting like a person being hunted. Roxanne didn't relax until the fire was lit and she let out a deep sigh as the crackling flames warmed her boots. There was something about the orange glow that cheered me up as well. Wrapped up in Roxanne's emergency thermal blanket, with hot rocks warming our shelter, and a starry sky overhead, the whole thing felt like a big adventure. Surely we would be back in town tomorrow and a larger team would find Deputy Amos and the others, who must have just gotten separated from us. Maybe they had even found Bryce, and to Alex Point, probably had some little dive bar where we would all laugh about this later. Help. A child's voice called from the darkness. I'm so cold. I wondered if exhaustion could make a person hallucinate. Surely, I hadn't heard. Help, I'm cold. Roxanne was on her feet in an instant but she wasn't rushing toward the trees. Instead, she grabbed a flaming branch from the fire and pulled a pistol from the back of her jeans. What the heck was going on? Bryce, I shouted back. Bryce, came the response. Help, I'm cold. Even with the beam of my headlamp, I couldn't find the source of the voice out in the dark trees. We've got to get out of here. Shh. My girlfriend grabbed my arm. Shut up and stay put, all right. Help, please help, I'm cold, I'm so cold. Bryce. The voice came from a few feet behind us, just outside of the firelight. We both spun around, but our shaky headlamps revealed nothing more than bare dirt. Bryce, I shouted. Don't worry, it's gonna be okay. We've been looking for you, we're friends of your mom. Mom, okay... ''Please help, cold. Please help, please help, I'm cold. Bryce, looking for mom.'' ''What are you doing?'' Roxanne hissed. ''That isn't Bryce. Who else could it be?'' I almost laughed. With my headlamp bobbing, I ran into the trees toward the source of the voice. ''Wait!'' Roxanne called, but I wasn't listening. I was following my fantasies into the dark. This was my chance.'' Instead of being the blundering idiot who had halted the search for nothing in three times and left the group, I would be the hero who actually found Bryce. More so, I thought, until I had gone so far into the underbrush that our fire was a candle flame in the distance. There was no sign of Bryce or Roxanne, and in the frigid and absolute silence I realized the depths of my mistake. It sounded like three gunshots, a strangled cry, and then silence. Panicking, I ran for the fire. Sweat poured down my face despite the chill that my heart felt like it might explode at any moment. I had regained the comforting glow of the flames, but the one who had kindled them was gone. I called for Roxanne until my throat was hoarse, but I didn't dare leave the fire. The next thing I remember was the dawn, pale and gray as the fire's ashes. I stared at them for a while, feeling shell-shocked. I didn't know how to build a fire like that, I didn't know how to read a map, and I didn't have one even if I did. I tried to follow Roxanne's footprints along the frosty ground, but quickly lost the trail. A sea of trees and rocks extended for miles in every direction. If I went the wrong way, I would probably die of exposure or starvation before I reached the edge of the woods, and whatever was going on out here was not natural. Roxanne was gone and there had been no news of Evan, Samir, and Deputy Amos either. No flare, no helicopter, no cavalry to ride in and save the day. If anyone was going to get me out of this, it was going to be me. I picked up a branch of hardwood about right for a walking stick and about right for a club. My fingers were numb and I felt better with it in my hand. Since Roxanne had been leading us south, I headed that way as well hoping I would find a large body of water or a landmark, or something that might lead me home and out of this nightmare. I called out to Roxanne, but my throat was so parched that my shout sounded more like dry, frostbitten wheezes. What could have happened to her? Had she gone off chasing Bryce or whatever it was in the trees? Had she gotten into some kind of fight? If so, why were there no scuffling footprints, no signs of a struggle... What wasn't I seeing here? The only thing I could think to do was return to Halleck's point and alert the authorities as soon as possible and so I trudged on. The temperature dropped with every step and soon fat white snowflakes fell all around me. Around noon, I reached the bottom of a swampy ravine that I thought I recognized. The jagged cliffs and golden reeds told me that I was no more than an hour's hike from the road but something was different. A path had been smashed down through the reeds. Someone had been here recently. I was hearing my heartbeat in my ears, but I didn't know what was on the other side of that trampled mock. The reeds and brush rose higher than my head, creating a kind of tunnel. It led to the blackness of a knee cave, a cave that opened at the bottom of the cliffs like a toothless grin. Something, I don't know what, made me want to approach silently. No good. Sticks split underfoot with each step. Beside me came a loud crackling, followed by shrieks of two birds taking off in the reeds and nothing more. My heart was in my throat. The mouth of the cave ahead had been stuffed with logs, sticks, and leaves. It had been dug out as well. It was a kind of nest. Hello? A voice whimpered from the darkness. Hey there. Please help. Uh, I'm so cold. I stopped at my tracks. Why don't you come out of there? I asked and for some reason I felt my body tense up. Like some long forgotten instinct was getting me ready to run. "Uh, Okay. A brown haired boy in a red park with a single blue mitten on his hand squirmed out of the cliff face in front of me. He was pale, sniffling, scratched up, and scared, but all things considered, he seemed all right. Bryce, I ventured. The boy nodded. What happened to you? I don't know. Bryce shrugged. He was trembling. I just want to go home. We stared at each other for a moment, unmoving. Bryce was scoping me out to see if I was safe, and I was doing the same to him. Why was I scared of a seven-year-old boy? The boy's face was stained with dirt and mucus. His lips were almost blue. This couldn't go on. I reached out and grabbed the child's wrist. "Uh, Do you know the way home, mister? I can't make any promises, I smiled. But I'll do my best. The child seemed weak, but I was too. He struggled in the thick mud and gravelly cliffs, but... I didn't have the strength to carry him. We were both beyond exhaustion when I finally glimpsed the thin line of the dirt forest road, the next valley over. I gave a little wheeze of joy and hurried downhill toward the parked cars below, dragging the child behind me. We had made it. I had more cause for joy than I knew. I wasn't the only searcher who had made it back. Up ahead, I saw a figure in a hunter orange vest and a big brown hat deputy amos i waved but his back was to me and my voice was too hoarse to shout we were atop the final ridge before the road when i finally caught up to him the sound of the child and i crashing through the undergrowth behind made amos turn his head i waved again deputy i gasped. i found amos turned slowly his hand on the pistol at to sap. But that wasn't what made my breath catch in my throat. It was what walked beside him. The little figure had been hidden by the deputy's bulk until we got close. But now it was clear. A little brown haired boy in a red park with a single blue mitten. The boys whose hand I held stopped dead and grabbed my wrist. He looked at himself standing beside Deputy Amos and then looked up at me. His eyes were big with confusion and fear. And then everything happened at once. The Bryce beside Amos let out an inhuman howl and shoved the deputy, who tumbled off the cliff, his arms windmilled helplessly as he fell. Gunshots rang out from the silent woods behind me, and the Bryce thing fled, whooping into the trees. Crab! I heard Roxanne yell. She ran up to me, hands wrapped in a professional grip around her pistol. I told you that wasn't Bryce. I'm Bryce, the boy holding my hand at it helpfully. He looked nervously at Roxanne's weapon. So that means you're not going to shoot me, right? Right. Roxanne smiled grimly. am not going to shoot you, kid. What we've got to do now is get you home. We crept up to the cliff edge to see what could be done for Deputy Amos, but it was useless. He lay at the bottom of the 90-foot precipice. Long hair spread out behind his shattered head like a silver halo. I covered Bryce's eyes before he could peer over the edge. All around us, the hills echoed with strange noises. They were identical to the sound the Bryce thing had made a weird mix of a whoop and a howl. Roxanne covered Bryce and I as we made the last log to the cars. Those howls made it seem like the things were everywhere but I couldn't see anything but gnarled trees and rocks. The overcast dusk didn't help any matters. It turned everything to shades of bluish-gray, except for the occasional points of light between the pines that might or might not have been eyes. Roxanne stuffed Bryce into the back of her car and started the engine the moment that we had reached the road. Her tires spun in the dirt as we pulled out. In the mirror behind us, I saw two shadowy figures running out of the woods behind us. They looked like Samir and Evan, and Roxanne guessed my thoughts. If it's really them, they can drive back after us. If not, there are things that can only leave the forest if someone invites them. You've got a lot of explaining to do, I rasped, pouring water down my throat. Maybe, Roxanne nodded, but let's get back to town first. We bumped and rattled down the narrow dirt road that led through that world of cliffs and endless trees. Bryce dozed fitfully in the back seat, his tiny hand wrapped around the half-eaten energy bar that I had given him. It would be more than miles before I fell asleep. Snow was falling when we skidded into the police station parking lot. The yellowish lights spilling in its doors and windows were the only lights still on in the tiny town of Halleck's Point. My girlfriend Roxanne had much more experience with search and rescue than I did, and so it was she who lifted the sleeping child from her back seat and carried him into the tiny station to offer our grim report. Still exhausted from my harrowing experience in the winter woods, I limped in after her and tumbled into the first chair that I saw. The first thing we heard was a low, visceral moan. Bryce! Carmen burst from the back office to throw her arms around her child. Bryce struggled grumpily as Carmen held him to her chest, sobbing. The boy had been missing for over 72 hours, considering the freezing weather and the cruel terrain. I suspect that even his mother had given up hope. He's probably a little hungry and dehydrated, but he mostly seems alright. Roxanne informed her. He then leaned around her. Directing her next words to the sheriff. He'll need to be checked for frostbite, among other things. Mamos. Sheriff Macaulay asked gruffly. The deputy didn't make it. Searchers Samar Patel and Evan Pickett are also missing. Not Jesus. Macaulay leaned back in his worn-out rolling chair and stroked his stubble. My department isn't prepared to handle this. Heck, my department wasn't prepared to handle one missing kid. "'I'm gonna have to call this in. "'Carmen, honey, you think you can run the Bryce over to the hospital yourself?' "'Carmen nodded, still too choked up to speak. "'As she laughed, Roxanne put a hand on her shoulder. "'No stops. "'I heard my girlfriend murmur, straight to the hospital. "'I know it looks bad out there, but don't pick up any hitchhikers no matter who they are. Uh, "'Okay.' Well, thank you both again so much. Once things are calmer, Abby and I would love to do something special to show our appreciation. You saved our son's life. With a last concerned look over her shoulder at us, Carmen with her son vanished into the night. I'm sorry, Sheriff McCauley sighed, but I'm gonna have to ask you folks to head back to wherever you're staying as well. Don't think we're not grateful. You heard this woman. That boy's alive and well because of all you, but things are about to get a real crazy around here. Man, I don't got time or the space. We understand, Roxanne cut in. We're pretty beat and we'll be heading back to Point Lodge if you need us for anything. After roughly marking the locations of Deputy Amos' body and the other searchers' disappearance on the sheriff's map, Roxanne drove us back to our kitschy pine cabin at the Point Lodge Motel. Now, I'd like to say that I helped Roxanne secure and lock up the cabin, or demanded an explanation for these strange things I had experienced during Bryce Hartford's rescue. The truth is, is that I face-planted onto the nearest bed and fell asleep without even taking off my boots. The last thing I remember was Roxanne peering out of the peephole, at the snowy nighttime parking lot, while she locked the door, pistol in hand. The news was on when I woke up. Roxanne sat at the corner of the bed with a styrofoam cup of coffee in hand, staring intently at the screen. "'You're up,' Roxanne smiled. "'Finally, I'm gonna go wash off.' She pushed her pistol into my hand. "'You've used one of these before, right?' If anyone tries to come in here, you know what to do. With that, she grabbed a fluffy towel off of the radiator and turned on the shower. You're kidding, right? I called after her. Right? No response. The cold metal felt heavy and unfamiliar in my hand. I sighed and tried to focus on the television. But each time I saw movement on the other side of the transparent curtains, I expected some awful thing to come for us. I didn't even know what I was afraid of, the boogeyman maybe, some big shadowy figure that would smash through the flimsy pine door and drag us away to dark places. Finished with her shower and dressed in PJs, Roxanne came back to the bed. Helicopter views of the wilderness we had trudged through played on all the local channels. Deputy Amos' death was the top story, along with our disappeared fellow search and rescue volunteers. Samir and Evan. Samir and Evan, I grunted. I thought I saw them on the edge of the trees just before we left. You saw something at the edge of the trees, Roxanne clarified. Something that might have looked like Samar and Evan, but it wasn't. With one last nervous look at the door, I gave Roxanne her pistol back. What aren't you telling me? I demanded. Why does a search and rescue volunteer need a gun? My girlfriend looked thoughtfully at the pistol and then sighed. She seemed to have made up her mind about something. I didn't expect to encounter them on your first search, Roxanne explained. I thought that I would have more time to train you in the basics of survival and navigation. So you would already be used to it when, well, it doesn't matter now. You've seen them now and there's no going back. Maybe this is for the best. It might make what I'm about to tell you a little easier to swallow. An 11-year-old girl and her family stop for lunch at a secluded mountain lake. Seems like a perfect spot. Mom can back her SUV almost down to the shore. Dad has a view of the mountains while he barbecues off the tailgate with his portable grill. While their parents fix lunch, the girl goes for a swim. She rolls her eyes when her parents make her bring a flotation of ice, they wouldn't let her even dip a toe in without one. There are rumors of a strong current and deep pits beneath the cheerful, bright blue water. At first, mom and dad look up anytime they heard their daughter squeal or scream. After a while though, they dismiss it with a knowing smile. She's a preteen girl after all, splashing around in water so cold and clear she can see the fish beneath her toes. She is thrilled by the place and swims further out than she probably meant to. Clear as the water is, she couldn't see the bottom beneath her kicking feet. It's just a bottomless, azure abyss. She suddenly remembers her parents' warning about pits and currents and glances nervously toward the shore. Her parents are gone. She blinks and pinches herself, but it doesn't change the empty shore in front of her. They wouldn't just leave her. There has to be an explanation. She calls out for them, swimming toward where the SUV had been parked for all she was worth. When she comes ashore, splashing, there's no sign that the car had ever been there. Not even tire tracks on the dusty dirt road. There's not a single sound or sign of life anywhere. The girl begins to panic. She tries to backtrack down the dirt road but is stopped by a four-way intersection she doesn't recognize. She had been too busy looking out the window on the drive-up to remember all the turns that the SUV had made. By now, the gravel has shredded her bare feet and a cold wind blows in front of the sun. The girl begins to seriously wonder if she'll make it out alive. And then she hears a voice. Honey, is that you? It comes from the woods, and it sounds exactly like her mother. The girl responds excitedly and pursues the voice deep into the woods. She doesn't notice how it eggs her on. We're over here, honey, just a little bit further. She jumps over moldy logs and climbs through rocky gullies until she no longer knows where the road, or even the lake, could be. Soon, she's standing in front of the black mouth of an enormous sinkhole, Ferns hang over its mossy leaves. Dew drips into a damp darkness that doesn't seem to have a bottom. She peers over the edge. Stay right there, I'm coming to get you. That's what it takes for the girl to realize that the voice she's hearing isn't her mother. Despite her aching feet, she flees, trying to find the road. But it's just trees, trees and more trees. She doesn't even know which direction she's running in she sees a clearing up ahead and leans against a boulder for a breather until she sees her mom and dad on the opposite side of the trees, beckoning her, encouraging her to step back beneath the shadow of the trees. She takes off, but she twists her ankle before she even escapes the clearing. She screams. She grabs a muddy stick and uses it to propel herself further, away from the grinning faces and the sing-song voices. She makes it as far as a broken slope of rust-covered rocks. Although her mind is terrified, her body just can't keep moving. She falls into the dust. She sobs and wails like she's never done before, but also she prepares. She drags herself toward one of the bigger rocks and covers herself with dirt, twigs, stones, anything she can find to keep the wind off and keep her hidden. Her teeth chatter until they ache, The shelter and coverings that she made protect her from hypothermia, just barely. She drifts off to the sound of unearthly voices calling her name beneath unfamiliar stars. When she wakes up, it's daylight again. The girl still hears her name shouted into the wind, but this time it's different. For one, the person yelling isn't anyone that she knows. It's a pot-bellied guy with a black beard and a hunter-orange jacket. He looks around carefully, and then he picks his nose. He tries to wipe his booger on his boot, trips, curses, and then kicks the rock that almost made him fall. That's how the girl knows that he's human. She tries to respond to him, but her throat is choked with dust. She tries to run to him, falls and crawls instead. She pulls herself up onto a boulder, waving her hands, but his back is to her. Out of options, she hurls a rock at him. It doesn't go far. But the tiny rock slide that it creates makes him turn around. He meets the girl's gaze and then calls something in on his shortwave radio. Later, the girl finds out that the search and rescue team, the big bearded man is a part of, wasn't even looking for her or at least not only her. They were looking for the girl's parents who were reported missing by her dad's coworker a few days ago. The girl is confused. According to the bearded man and his rugged-looking pals, four days had passed, but for the girl, it had been less than twenty-four hours. One thing, however, is certain. The girl's parents are nowhere to be found. She wonders about what happened to them. Was their experience like her own? Were they called into the woods by her voice? Led up to some dark pit and finally, what? Killed? Eaten? Taken somewhere else? transformed into something else. The fact is, the more she tries to tell her story to the search and rescue team, the more muddled it becomes, until not even the girl is sure what happened. The image of that black hole in the deep woods grows larger and larger in her mind, until its blackness blots out everything else. I went to a dark place, she tells police and researchers, until even she believes it. The girl swam too far out, and her parents got lost looking for her. That was the official version, and for many years, the girl convinces herself that it's true. But nightmares, hypnosis, regression therapy, and other stranger methods lead her back to the truth. Something unexplainable happened at that lake, and it might have happened to other people as well. Roxanne took a deep breath and then shot a Dixie cup of water like it was whiskey. Her story was definitely weird, but I didn't see what it had to do with Bryce's disappearance until I was that girl, Roxanne murmured. Summer of 98, we had our whole lives ahead of us. Teardrops appeared on the cheesy black bear print quilt. I held her, that's what got you into this, I reasoned. You became a search-and-rescue volunteer to figure out what happened to your parents. I've done search-and-rescue for 15 years now, and I still don't have any answers. I still don't know how the thin places work. Thin places, I probed. That's just what I call them, Roxanne sniffed. They show up everywhere if you're looking for them. Different cultures at different times. It shows up again and again. This idea that there are spots where whatever divides our realities from other realities is weak. Thin places are spots where it's possible to pass through to other places, and maybe things from there can cross over as well. And, uh, I peeked out the curtains at the endless rows of ridges and pine trees. Do they always show up in places like this? Look, thin places often seem to show up on remote patches of government land. I'm not sure if that's a coincidence or not. I'm not sure if they're drawn somehow to desperate people and empty spaces. I'm not sure if they're open or closed, move or stay still. I put so much of my life into this, and it's like I haven't made any progress at all. Roxanne stood and paced angrily around our tiny room. You saved Bryce. I whispered. Probably a lot of other people too. Okay, fine. Roxanne admitted. But what about me? Where is my happy ending? When do I get to see my parents walk out of the woods and hug them till the paramedics separate us? When do I at least get some closure? Her shouts ended. The silence deepened. That was a mistake. I never should have brought anyone with me. Why don't we go now? I interjected. What? You say that the thin places seem to be too way right? And if Samar and Evan, or the things pretending to be them, are still running around out there, the gateway must still be open. So, let's go. Not to rescue anyone, not to bring back proof. Just to see if there's anything we can learn about what happens to people who end up there. People like your parents. How long have I known you again? Roxanne crossed her arms skeptically. Look, I appreciate the gesture, but I don't really think you understand what you're offering. I mean, even if we find a way to cross over, it's pretty likely that neither of us will make it back. It's crazy, I know. I bent over, repacking my gear and tossing Roxanna keys. Which is why we better get out there before I change my mind. It was an odd feeling, trying to find the place where we had been lost before. As Roxanne parked along the side of the dirt road where we had searched for Bryce, my eyes drifted to the tree line. I remembered how the things that looked like our friends had lingered there, just beyond the reach of light. How their eyes seemed to glow as red as the taillights as we fled. The hunt for our missing companions Samir and Evan continued, but from where we stood even the helicopter sounded far away. Instead of the coughs and curses and shouts of the other searchers, there was only a heavy silence that felt like an extra weight in my pack. Roxanne and I talked about our gear, our intended path, the sweat on our butts and even the weather. Anything to avoid mentioning the thin places. Anything to avoid mentioning our goal. The forest, however, wouldn't let me forget... Every rustle in the undergrowth or clatter of stones from my cliffs set my teeth on edge. Roxanne had done search and rescue enough to distinguish important sounds from unimportant ones. I apparently had not. That first day, we made camp in good spirits, although I didn't feel comfortable navigating alone. I was starting to get the hang of the compass and the map. Roxanne was quiet and thoughtful. I figured that's like me, She had never gone out this far without a crew before. Huddled against Roxanne in my sleeping bag that night, I found myself hoping that things would go like this until our supplies ran out. What if we never found anything? Then just returned home and put all of this behind us. We set out with the dawn in a gray haze. Damp rocks and ferns, white mist and the loomish, greenish-black shadows of pine trees. That was our whole world, The fog had an odd way of muffling sound. I thought that I heard deer grunting behind me, but when I turned, I only saw a wall of white. A while later, Roxanne pointed out three deer in the distance. They all stood stock still, observing us. Maybe it was just a trick of the mist, but I had swear the deer stood up on two legs and walked off after we had passed by. Maybe it was the fog that interfered with Roxanne's GPS equipment. We hadn't been dating long, but I recognized that face she made when she scrunched up her eyebrows and scrutinized the little device. It was the face of someone who just added 2 plus 2 and got 5. Is there a problem? I asked. We were standing in a trellis patch of knee-high ferns. The mist had lifted, but the bits of sky beyond the trees were still a sea of gray. GPS is malfunctioning, Roxanne grunted. It's happened before, usually when we're... Close, I finished. Yeah. Our little conversation felt swallowed up by the size and silence of the woods around us. Roxanne took a deep breath, checked her map and compass and trudged forward. We had gone a long way by the time we realized that the compass couldn't be trusted either. I stared stupidly at the needle while it spun freely. Roxanne and I scanned the trees around us for a direction, a landmark, anything. Until our eyes settled on Samir's hunter-orange jacket, hung high on several branches with the arms extended. It looked like the torso of a crucified man. Who or what had put it up there, I wondered, and why. Let's keep moving, Roxanne tucked my sleeve. I don't know about you, but I don't relish the idea of spending the night with that thing hanging over us. She was right. It was already dusk, and a twisted ankle could be fatal out here. Roxanne headed uphill, hoping to find an open ridge where we might get our bearings. It would have to wait until the morning, though. Because stars were twinkling overhead by the time that, we found a spot to camp. They're beautiful, aren't they? I said, looking into the cosmos above us. It's like you don't really see the night sky until you come out to a place like this, you know? That's because this isn't our night sky, Roxanne sighed, not even turning away from the tent that she was setting up. What? I know how to navigate by the stars. Those aren't our stars. I felt the blood rush to my face. But don't be afraid. Roxanne went on. I'm not a kid anymore. This time we came to this place by choice, wherever it is. We can leave the same way. We have to believe that. Do you believe it? I do, I nodded. I didn't. Well, then let's get some sleep, because from this point on, I don't know what we're going to find. The next morning, it was what I couldn't find that made me panic. Where was Roxanne? I had a fuzzy memory of her rustling around in the dark, slipping away outside of the tent. The sky was still gray. Nothing but trees and stony ridges as far as the eye could see. And no Roxanne. The wind whipped around me and I shouted her name. What? Roxanne emerged from behind a tree, pulling up her pants. You look like you've seen a ghost. No, it's just... I trailed off. Something was bothering me, but what? I could have put my finger on it. Nothing, I guess. Let's keep moving. Roxanne and I usually discussed our route, but not that day. She set off downhill so quickly that I struggled to keep up. Where are we going? You'll know it when you see it, Roxanne snapped. I got some idea of what she meant as we walked. The landscape was subtly changing as we walked. Instead of rugged mountains, it was taking on the shape of what might be found around a California lake, a lake like the one where Roxanne's parents had disappeared to. Gray rocks turned to a dusty red. Tall pines were replaced by shrub and cacti. Roxanne, what's going on? I shouted over gusts of arid wind. We're getting close. I could barely hear her reply over gusts of arid wind. They seemed to come from everywhere all of a sudden, pushing us forward toward a cave, a black hole surrounded by dripping ferns, the nightmarish pit from Roxanne's story. If it was really Roxanne leading me here, I froze. Back at the campsite, had I checked to be sure that it was really her, not something else. Suddenly, I wasn't so sure. Roxanne pressed ahead, but I lingered, wondering if I had made a terrible mistake. Found you! I jumped and spun and slipped on a wet root, and nearly fell into Samar's chest. Me gave me a big grin. Why was he still wearing his orange vest? We had seen it named all hanging from a tree. Found you! Samar said again, his smile widening. Found you! Three pistol shots. Samar's head split like a melon. I screamed. Roxanne had just killed someone, or had she? Samar, or the thing that looked like him, didn't seem to be bothered by having his head blasted in half. It stood there patiently, repeating the same words over and over while smoking bits of skull and brain matter dripped down its visible throat. Teeth fell out of its shattered jaw as it spoke, but it didn't stop. Found you! Found you! Its shrieking gurgle reached a fever pitch that echoed all around us. I looked down at its hands. The fingers splintered, and then shot towards us, some shooting through the air like vines, others slithering along the dirt for our legs like obscene snakes with dirty fingernail faces. Run! Roxanne shouted, firing two more useless shots into the thing's chest. As it lurched forward, I felt one of its freakishly long fingers slither around my ankle. I moaned, stopped and kept sprinting, although I could see that it was hurting us toward the pit. Its dark abyss beckoned to us both. It was the feeling that I had had many times before standing on a high ledge. That little voice that whispers to jump and see what might happen magnified by a thousand. It was like the land itself was shifting, sucking us in. Roxanne, running a bit ahead of me, noticed at first the feeling that the ground beneath our feet had become too steep to turn or halt our descent. Her red ponytail flashed for a second as she spun, mouth open to warn me, and then she was gone, devoured by the blackness. I couldn't have stopped even if I wanted to. I grabbed at stray roots and plants, but my fingers slipped away. I was in free fall. All light disappeared. And then I was out again, somehow walking up the same impossible slope that I had just fell down, into the same bizarre clearing. The weird physics of it all made me so dizzy that I fell to my knees on the damp ground. Treetops were spinning overhead, I shut my eyes tight. When I opened them again, the colors felt wrong, the air tasted different, and I wasn't alone. Ahead of me, Roxanne, too, grabbed at fistfuls of dirt and raged. A familiar-looking figure watched over her. So familiar, she looked like a slightly older version of Roxanne. Her mother, and a slim, mustached man in plaid. Her father. If their clothes and age were any indicator, the pair hadn't changed at all since they had disappeared. "'I've... I've come back,' Roxanne said." To rescue you. Rescue us? Roxanne's mother laughed. No, it is we who are rescuing you. Darling, Roxanne's father explained kindly. Where you're from, your body will grow old, get sick and die. You're bound to one form. Here, there is no death. Only endless rebirth. That's why we always search for and rescue those who are lost on the other side. Roxanne's mother went on. To bring them here, where our forms are infinite. As she spoke, her torso stretched horribly, extending like a giant centipede rearing to strike. Mossy antlers grew from the back of his skull and her face warped into a nightmarish blend of human and deer. Her father's body changed as well. ...splitting into three like a folding paper cutout. The tendrils that connected his three parts squimmed and writhed like maggots and rotten fruit. We could hear bones snapping and watch the dark flowing blood. But the two things in front of us seemed completely unbothered by their transformation. And that wasn't all. I realized that the entire glade in which we stood was alive and conscious. The ferns and leaves stood on end quivering with anticipation, perhaps to consume what was left after the things that had been Roxanne's parents had finished with us. The trees, too, creaked and leaned forward hungrily, old men bending over their dinner table. Winged things settled under the branches and other, less describable forms twisted themselves out of the mossy ground. The ground. Even the dirt beneath our feet was shifting, Closing the gap to the world that we had come from. Roxanne's parents' speech and transformation had just been a ruse to distract us while the way was shot. I staggered forward on the uneven living terrain, grabbed Roxanne's hand and hurled myself toward the closing pit. The pit had been enormous but it was barely shoulder wide when I passed through, even tighter for Roxanne. Dirt closed in around us and I felt Roxanne's wrist slipping through my fingers. I clawed in the potter dirt in front of me and realized that the physics had changed. I was clawing up instead of down. Spitting and hacking, I pulled myself into the ferny grove and did what I could to dig Roxanne out. I had barely cleared room for her to breathe when I felt something wrap around my ankle and pull. The forest wasn't letting us go. Whatever had grabbed me also had Roxanne. Her green eyes widened as she was dragged back into the loose earth. I watched her twist and flail as she disappeared. The grasp on my ankle released. I screamed my girlfriend's name and dug at the loamy soil but she was gone, swallowed by the other side. I dug until my fingernails were black and bleeding, until I had no strength left in my arms and I rolled over filthy and exhausted to stare up at a cloudy sky that was only just beginning to clear. "'It's you!' Samara's voice caused me to flip and climb up to my feet, ready to run, but the man in front of me was as filthy as I was, and not wearing his orange jacket. Evan limped behind him, his leg in a lashed-together wooden splint. It "'Feels like we've been out here for weeks, man,' Evan grunted, and then he to notice for the first time that I was alone.' Uh, ''Where's the rest of your crew?'' I punched the dirt and cried. Without Samar and Evan's help, I'm sure that I would have died out there. None of us knew the way back, but whatever was affecting the area had dissipated enough for our instruments to slowly begin to work. The GPS signal was still spotty and the compass needle drifted more than it should, but they were accurate enough to get us back to the forest road. From there, we were spotted by the helicopter, and soon Samar and Evan were answering local reporters' questions about their harrowing experience. I hung back on purpose. I didn't have the heart to talk to anyone, and all I asked from the rest of the search and rescue crew was that they dropped me off at Roxanne's car, which, fortunately, I had my own keys to. As I opened the car door... I tried to shut out the image of all the memories we had shared in her second-hand car, but I was surprised to see an envelope with my name on it in the driver's seat. If you're reading this, it means that I'm gone. Don't think of it as an end, think of it as the beginning. You see, I didn't get involved in search and rescue to find my parents, I did it to find my way home. I don't remember what I was before I took on that little girl's appearance and memory. Something went wrong in the transformation. I forgot my purpose, what I was. I even forgot about the thin places. Fortunately, those search and rescue volunteers invited me in, and I was able to keep up the act though this place and body have never really felt like my own. I searched blindly for many years until I rediscovered the truth. When beings like you are lost, alone, or desperate, you create the thin places yourselves. Your subconsciousness calls out to them, and I needed one of you. The more time I spend close to the thin places, the more I feel like what I truly am. Where I'm from, we don't have concepts of love or guilt or gratitude, so consider this a kind of gift. Forget me. Forget search and rescue, and stay away from lonely places. They might just invite you in. Yours, Roxanne I hope you all enjoyed the stories for this week. As always, I hope you stay safe and sound wherever you may be in the world. And of course... Stay creepy.